Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of the great and powerful Break the Rules stream. I'm your host, Lev Polyakov at Levpo on Twitter. It is a great pleasure to be here with uh, Christopher Balding, senior fellow of the Henry Jackson Society. And uh, you were a, a professor at the HSBC School of Business in Shenzhen, China. And now you are a professor at Vietna in, uh, in Vietnam. As uh, far as I uh, understand, you are an absolute expert on the economy of uh, China and what is going on today with the world events as far as the United States, China, Russia. We are going to get into all of that and more. Once again, I am asking everybody to subscribe add a like, share this video with everybody you know, and become a patron, patreon.com slash break the rules. You know it, you love it, and I guarantee you will not. You will not be disappointed with the kind of content Break the Rules uh, comes out with. We bring everybody together. That is the mission of Break the Rules, and we are going to keep bringing people together. Anyway, uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about why you went into China in the first place, became a professor there? What got you out of China? Just the whole backstory. I'm very uh, interested to start off. Yeah, sure. This this is actually, I think, uh, an interesting story. Um, you know, to be perfectly frank, I never had any intention. I never at any point in my life set out to go to China. Um, the, the, the true story was, and, I, and I'm not making this up, my, I'm giving you the shortened version here. My wife was at a job that, uh, with some absolutely psychopathic uh, bosses. And so without telling her, I started sending her resume to headhunters. And so a headhunter called up, you know, and she didn't know I was doing this. And so the headhunter started emailing me because I created a burner account and said, hey, we love your we love your work. We, 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 we have a client in Beijing that would love to hire you for, for a couple of months. Um, and so I said, oh, crap, I'm going to have to tell my wife what I did. And so I still remember to this day going and telling my wife, honey, I, I sent out your resume. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a client that really wants to hire you. And did I mention it's in Beijing? OK, so like that is the true story of the first time we ever ended up going to China. Um, and to be honest, I mean, look, I've for all the criticism I level at uh, the Chinese government, um, I absolutely love uh, Asia. We've had a wonderful time uh, in our experiences with China. Um, lifelong friends, Chinese and otherwise. Uh, so, you know, I don't want anything I say to, to detract from that. And also just want to shout out this wonderful comment by the ABC, Christopher Ballin. Call him Christopher Spalding. <laughs> oh, I'm assuming man. that that refers to, to General Spalding. <laughs> Wait, who is General Spalding? Oh, he was. Uh, oh, where was that from? I forget. He yeah. he's he was a he was a general that is also known as a as a, as a decided uh, China hawk as well. Hmm. Very oh, interesting. Maybe I should also bring him on the show. But anyway, we are going to get to what is going on with China and Russia. But first, we as far a lot as of extremes from yes. the China opinion, we've yes. had like logo, logo, like very much you know, Ziping, greatest statesman of the 21st century, and we mm. have now critics of China. Full disclosure. Um, when I did my MA at Brock University um, in politics, one of my professors was actually Charles Burton, who's like in Canada, the foremost China expert, who was actually there during the Cultural Revolution. So, um, but he's, yeah, so he writes in the Globe and Mail a lot. Um, mm. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know 
from a business perspective, I guess that's what we're going to talk about. Um, like what, what led you to really, um, cause it, there's a lot of opinion that is, especially online, that's very divergent. Um, some saying that, you know, oh, you know, China, they're like the best model ever. And, you know, they're way leagues ahead of the West. And then there's others that are saying that there's actually secret fissures within the Chinese economy that um, they can't hide anymore. So I, I don't know. I'm like, maybe it gets a good way to get into the conversation. So what do you think of the overall structure of the current Chinese economy, especially under Xi Ping? Hmm. Um, well, and, so and also think... adding into that, also, I'm curious why you left uh, China as well. But uh, maybe those two things uh, factor into maybe each other. Maybe they relate to each other. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, so, so actually, actually, why I left China was uh, is, is, is pretty unrelated. So I had been there, I think, eight and a half years. Uh, mm. and basically the short version again is, is that I had raised the issue of, uh, China asking, uh, foreign, uh, university publishers to censor their work, uh, on China and remove articles within, uh, within China. Um, and needless to say that did not go over too well at, uh, at the university, Peking university that I, that I worked for. Um, and so basically in a snap decision, um, I was told that my services were no longer needed. And this literally came like two days before I was scheduled to start teaching. Um, so this, this came at, you know, basically the, at, at the last minute. Um, and to, to be, to be fair, uh, I was never, I was perfectly honest. I was never asked to, you know, not say anything while I was there about the Chinese economy and stuff like that. I avoided the sense topics like, you know, let's say Tiananmen, Tibet, things like that. Um, but when it came to things like the economy, um, I, you know, I, I was never asked to, uh, to refrain from saying anything. I probably was a little more restrained, but I, I never, I never really held back on, on the economy. Um, the state of the Chinese economy today, um, I think if you, one of the, I think key points is, is, is what is your reference point? And what I mean by that is, is if you actually look at, let's say, the Chinese economy next to its like peer economies, and just as a couple of reference points, uh, countries like Mexico or Malaysia, Russia, uh, Brazil, uh, things like that would be relatively good peer economies because of their GDP per capita. Okay, so that that's that's what we're going to look at. And if, actually, if you look at it that way. Um, I think the Chinese economy is quite clearly uh, in showing enormous stress. And, you know, just as uh, just as an example, um, the debt levels of the Chinese economy uh, compared to everyone says well, we should compare the debt level of China compared to the U.S. That's actually for multiple reasons, not a good comparison. It's better to compare the debt level of China to, say, what Russia or Mexico or those are. And by any standard that you would look at. If you look at it next to peer uh, peer economies, uh, China is wildly an extreme outlier on uh, on, for instance, indebtedness. Um, if you look at it as to how much um, how much uh, infrastructure has been built, things like that. Again, China is 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 an extreme outlier. So if they didn't build any infrastructure for probably t almost a decade or something like that, they'd still be far ahead. So basically what has happened in a lot of ways is they have, 
is they have raced ahead and front-loaded a lot of that infrastructure, resulting in a higher GDP growth, but they've also expanded their debt much, much faster. Mm. Um, so that uh, if, if they, in, that has basically brought forward a lot of that growth that would be spread out over the years, and they simply don't have let's say the non uh, the non input uh, type of uh, growth uh, left, um, and what I'm uh, without without really making very fundamental changes to the economy. So th I have no doubt that they're going to continue to build more apartments that don't need to be built and more bridges that go nowhere. Um, but that is simply creating more and more problems. And so I, I think there's. You know, look, it, it, it could last a long time. Make no mistake about it. I'm not predicting the downfall of China in six months. Um, it's very likely to, to last quite significant period of time. But there absolutely is enormous stresses in the economy. And when it comes to the power structure with uh, Xi Jinping kind of taking over, at least as it appears to an outsider like me, an imperial role, if we look at historical China do you think that this top-down dictatorship that, again, it appears to me as an outsider in China, is something that's going to make it last? Or is this more of the sign that China's on its way out, specifically because it has this top-down dictatorship, as opposed to the kind of system beforehand where, you know, capitalism was taken in, but... Uh, it, uh, you know, it, it was, how, how did uh, how did that phrase go? It was socialism with Chinese characteristics. But in that system, people were still relatively free in comparison to now. So I don't know. Even before, like the pull-up bureau before Ping. Yeah, exactly. Rose to power. Yeah, yeah. The, the the comparison that I would I would make and and I take this, I'm going, I'm, I borrow this example from my wife, who is an architect, um, is, is, is building materials. And building materials can be flexible and they can be very rigid. Um, and so basically what you generally want is building materials that are both rigid and flexible. Okay. And so what happens is, is for instance, um, if you're, if you're building a concrete structure, they will put rebar in the, in the concrete so that it can be both very strong and flexible. So that when there's an earthquake or something like that, the, the, the rigidity of the concrete doesn't start to crumble. It, it allows that, that concrete to, to flex without collapsing. What's happening with, with Xi is that he's making it increasingly rigid and he's removing that flexibility. Okay, so what happens with that is it makes it increasingly rigid, but increasingly, and so that makes it very strong, but that also makes it increasingly prone to near instantaneous collapse. Okay, so put it this way if you told me, if we, if, if we were to jump forward in history and you were to tell me, in six months, she wakes, doesn't wake up and he's suffered a heart attack. I could believe that is very plausible. If you tell me Xi Jinping is still ruling China in 20 years, yeah, I could very easily believe that. The problem is, is that whether it's in six months or in 20 years, there's going to be a transfer of power. And these types of things these types of power structures do not lend themselves well to smooth, easy transitions of power. They do not lend themselves to um, economic transitions. Um, mm. Even if she stays in power and he says, hey, we need to change our economy. They do not lend themselves to those types of uh, societal, economic, political evolutions um, that take place smoothly and easily. 
So, so in you, a way, he's already stuck, well, you'd say. Like, even if he wanted to change the system, it's already there in this particular way. Yes, he's he's already changed that system in a way, yes. Absolutely. Mm. But now he can't undo that change. Now he's just stuck on uh, doing that same thing uh, that he's been doing all this time. I think that's correct, yes. And, and you know, just to give you as an example, there was a very famous uh, episode, and the Chinese remember it very well. It, it, it occupies let's say not a major place in history, but in, in, you know, uh, in Chinese and how Westerners view it. But I guarantee you it's a lesson China Chinese have learned well, and it's called the thousand flowers bloom, uh, period. And this is where she, or uh, not she, but, uh, Mao went around telling everyone, yes, we want to change. We want to evolve. We want to do things differently. And so basically the idea was there were going to be all these ideas bloom. And so lots of Chinese came out and started criticizing Mao and, you know, the, the government and how China needed to change and all this kind of good stuff. And basically Mao then took all these people that, you know, put these ideas forward and said, these are the people we need to get rid of. <laughs> and so basically, even if she did that at this point, I don't think anybody would believe him as we can trust him that we're not going to be exiled uh, mm. as soon as we open our mouth. But, but do you think that China isn't, which some have argued, uh, my friend Joel Davis is one of them, is that uh, China's in a better position to service their debt through massive public works and through a command economy than, say, America can with our, with, you know, North, North America in general, because people don't know this, but Canada as well has massive personal debt. Uh, do you think that they're in a better position to sort of um, command their own future relative to a sort of changing geopolitical landscape when it comes to the economy and specifically as Western governments sort of take huge, you know, hits on the nose, the Chinese can sort of stay afloat or stay at least solvent and sort of ride it out the way they did in the nineties with, you know, the Asian debt crisis. Uh, or do you think that that is just gone and that maybe Xi Ping has like overplayed his hand? Uh, uh, so, so basically I think getting back to this idea of rigidity, um, I think it's actually just to give you a, a couple of ideas. So first of all, the Chinese household, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head for Canada, but the Chinese household is already, by any standard you use, one of the most indebted households in the world relative to household income. Okay. More hmm. than the United States, more than most of Europe. Um, so, uh, and, and I should say they pay significantly higher uh, in, uh, interest rates on those, on those loans. Okay. So the, the Chinese household, um, the, the, the Chinese government, I mean, we could go on and on the, the Chinese corporates. Um, so I, I don't think you can necessarily say that the Chinese government or Chinese corporate or Chinese household is, is de facto, uh, in a, in a, in a, in a better place, just, just because, um, the other thing that I think is, is, is very important is when I, when I hear arguments like this, um, I don't think they're necessarily accurate. And I'll, I'll just give you the, the simple reason is, is that China is still a, is still a very closed economy and it's basically a dollarized economy. Okay. So, um, just as an example, um, I saw, I, I don't know if you've seen these reports today that, uh, Saudi Arabia is negotiating. Yeah. Uh, yes. You mentioned okay. that. Yeah. I saw you that. saw that today, um, to sell. They want to buy uh, you on or, uh, well, Sorry. basically, they're going to settle oil trades in in RMB. Okay. Okay. Now, yeah. Oh, Billy, that's going to be terrible. Oh God. So, so basically, there, yeah. there's two issues there. So, first of all, it it appears that their plan is 
uh, is to pay for some of the uh, some uh, projects in Saudi Arabia for Chinese labor in uh, in in that RMB, and then the rest is going to be converted into U.S. dollars. Okay, Saudi Arabia has no interest in holding RMB. Okay, I mean, Saudi, I mean, outside of China, you can't use RMB. You know, hmm. no, no exporter is get, is going to take RMB. I mean, you, you can't use it. It's not, you know, banks even in Asia won't accept it outside of China. You can't use it uh, to facilitate credit or things like that. So outside of China, RMB is effectively, you know, funny money. Um, and so the other thing is, is that because they haven't opened up, they basically... Um, it, it, it's basically a, a, a balloon that is just, it, it's pressure, it's, it's pressurized. And so the central bank, when, for instance, if they engaged on massive public works, that has to be absorbed 100% internally. And there's a lot more pressure um, on inflation and things like that if, if that takes place 100% internally. The U.S., I mean, to, to, to be honest, we have a lot more flexibility because yes, that takes place. We're essentially dealing with the global economy when when, when the Fed does that. There's there's a lot more international investor demand, things like that. But do you think that um, there is a possibility, and some people are talking about it, and maybe Saudi Arabia is hedging their bets, that um, basically Chinese currency could potentially be used outside of China if they have this strategic alliance with, say, um, Russia, Iran, maybe Brazil, you know, like basically the non-Western, the, or uh, rather I should say non-NATO. The, uh, like, the JV team, basically. Yeah, the JV. Oh, well, um, okay, so, so this yeah. is where we get into a little bit of financial architecture is um, – so basically you can go to almost any country in the world and if you whip out a Benjamin, you can pay for something. Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, no questions asked. If you bring RMB anywhere in the world, people are going to look at you like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? Okay. Mm -hmm. you, you, you can't do anything with that. So when we talk about this, I think it's very important to note what we're talking about is little more than basically a mathematical exercise. Okay. Um, so that, and, and, and what I mean by that is this. So even if Saudi Arabia settles it in RMB, what they're basically going to do is they're basically going to say, okay, we're going to have a, an accounting exercise. We owe you, and I'm going to make up a number here. Let's assume we, we ship you 10 billion RMB of oil, okay? You're building us something in Saudi Arabia. We owe you a billion RMB for that this month. Out of that 10 billion of oil we just sold you, take out 1 billion and convert the rest into dollars for us. That's what's going to happen. Hmm. Okay. Because outside of, outside of China, what are you going to do with it? Hmm. What are you going to do? With it? You, you, you can't use it outside of, so they're going to, they're going to, they're going to basically buy what they need from China. And so basically it's just a mathematical uh, exercise for lack could, of a better term. And okay. sanctions avoidance. I should say sanctions Oh, avoidance. yeah, that's... Mm. Well, that's speaking of sanctions, reason. I do want to get to the uh, Russia part of this as well, since the title of this episode is uh, China's uh, Russia. So, well, before that... Yes. Okay, go but, on, Gio. But do you think, yeah. like, theoretically, that potentially it could change? Because people are talking about the U.S. dollar being, you know, weakened by certain actions. and Or do you think that in the future, maybe... Uh, you know, the Chinese currency, they could potentially, you know, that may not be the world currency, but we become a rival currency or it just so, doesn't work like that. 
it, it, it doesn't work like that. And there's a very simple explanation um, for the RMB to become a, a true right. So let's put it this way. China, if they wanted to, could snap their fingers and tomorrow have a rival currency. No questions asked. By economic size, by financial importance, absolutely. No questions asked. Okay, right. There's a very simple explanation. Until the RMB can be freely exchanged and a global price set, it's never going to happen. And they period and the end, and will never let that happen. And until China lets that happen, which it, it that is not going to happen in the foreseeable future, hmm. until that happens, because look, how are let, for, forget China for a second? How are Brazil and South Africa supposed to trade goods in RMB if China doesn't let RMB into the rest of the world and doesn't let that RMB trade at, at a free price? Hmm. Well, what would happen, happen? What would happen if it did? Let's just pretend that China. If there was like a reform movement, if there was another, uh, what, what was the Russian equivalent? Perestroika, right? Perestroika. Not, or, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so what would happen is, first of all, uh, the RMB would probably drop. It, let's assume right now Beijing snapped their fingers and said the RMB is freely convertible. Chinese citizens and firms can do whatever can do whatever they want with RMB and take it anywhere in the world. The RMB would immediately drop probably at least 50 percent you know okay i mean in the snap of a finger it would drop probably beneath 10 you know i I mean maybe that's a little more than 50 percent, but i would say it would drop almost immediately to you know at at least 10 um the other thing is is that it would wreck the banks it would wreck chinese banks they would absolutely implode um because Basically, Chinese citizens would now say, wait a minute, I can take my money anywhere I want in the world. I'm taking it out of a Chinese bank. Now, mind you, these are banks that are are already on the edge of collapse. Okay, these are Mm. very these are banks that are in terrible shape. The other thing is, is like so in a lot of cities in China, the, the, the price to income ratio on real estate is, you know, if you're low, it's upwards of probably 30. There are cities where it's upwards of 50. It's insane. Yeah. The, the, the price to income, the real estate prices in China would absolutely collapse. Collapse. Okay. Mm. Because now people mm. could, could think of it this way. The, just to give you an idea, the, the, where I lived in, in Shenzhen, the apartment I was living in probably would have sold for about $2.5 million. Okay. It was 1400 square feet or so $2.5 million. Nothing special, nothing special. This was not a luxury in the Ritz, you know, anything, but $2.5 million. The people around me probably made, I would guess, $20,000 a year, maybe maybe $30,000 a year if they were doing well. Okay. It, it doesn't make any sense. So what they would be doing is they say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell my $2.5 million Shenzhen apartment. I'm going to drop a million dollars to buy a nice house in, in America. And I'm going to stick 1.5 in the bank and relax. You know, I'm, you know, hell I'm retired. Okay. Mm, it, it, yeah. it, it, it absolutely wrecks the Chinese economy if they do that. And they know it. Is there also uh, you'd say a, a distrust of what's going to happen to the future of China from the Chinese people themselves? And how much does uh, something like corruption uh, factor into this? So as far as uh, tying this into Russia, and I want to tie it into Russia in other ways as well, but if we're specifically speaking about the corruption here, 
I think one of the biggest uh, reasons why the Russian, you know, why they should probably change the Z into a letter L with uh, how they're doing over there in Ukraine. Oh, here we go, left. Here, here we go. go. Here we go. Here we go. Russian propaganda. Is because, yes, Russian propaganda. <laughs> is because the Russian government takes around 80% of the money that's supposed to go into the things like the military. They're robbing their own infrastructure dry. And what I'm curious is whether similar things have been going on in China and whether that is also something that makes the uh, Chinese population uh, lose uh, faith. Because a lot of people, from what I understand, have been executed by the Chinese government for corruption, yet corruption is still happening. So something's weird here. Why aren't the executions working? So it's so what research is basically found and what a lot of uh, and what a lot of instinct told people was first of all it was as much a political cleanse as, as as it was an actual corruption crackdown so that if you were so that he did absolutely go after people that were let's say generally linked to his faction but he also went a lot more after people that weren't that were linked to other factions okay so the other thing is is that uh you know corruption doesn't necessarily go away. They just get better at doing it. They figure out different ways to do it. Okay. Um, so I think that is a, that is a very important thing. You know, when you talk about like the Russian military, you know, there were there, the, the stories of corruption um, in the Chinese military are absolutely legendary. Okay. Like there was, there was a great story and this actually made the news in China. There was a guy who started going around a Chinese province and he didn't even work for the military, but he told people he did. And he started just basically saying, I'm accepting bribes to put people in at the officer level, okay, of the Chinese military. The guy made a few million bucks before the Chinese authorities realized what this guy was up to, okay? I mean, think about this. This guy just said, hey, I work for the Chinese military, and he made a few million bucks before anybody caught on to the fact that he didn't actually work for the military, okay? There's a couple of stories of generals that worked in HR, I should say. They didn't even work in like armaments and things like that. There was this general that worked in HR. And when they arrested him, he had uh, he had a, a sizable Beijing apartment that was floor to ceiling cash except for his bed. Okay. Just and the, the, the urban legend was is that they broke 25 cash counting machines just to count all the cash that went in, was in his apartment. Okay, um, they, that was they, uh, that was the urban legend. But uh, what I don't understand here is, and I would want Geo to uh, speak on this as well right now because I think the biggest frustration that's going on online, I think more than in the real world, is that people see Russia and China as well to a certain extent, although lesser extent because I know they're like more they seem to be more uh, more foreign there's and, only like a certain amount lev of the of the online right that like are hardcore xenophiles yes, there's yes. like the wholesome chungus like camp up you know oh i said his name logo <laughs> widen then there's like yeah. certain white nationalists who no, are but like the idea, no China but the idea no yes but the idea so, still comes down to the whole base and red pill thing where we're talking about there being favoritism towards russia right now despite the horrible things that the government is doing specifically because it's seen as the antithesis of what is perceived to be this hegemonic united states western culture so I don't want to put any words in your mouth, Gio, but can you describe a little bit more detail about why 
this uh, side well, of the internet the, the favors. Case, okay, the case is a bit more to be made with Russia because the Eurasian ideal at least is closer to like a more European, although I wouldn't say, like there's a lot of people that are correct to point out that the Russians aren't exactly pro-European or pro-North American right wing. I mean, obviously. Um, but it's like, it's closer to be made that they have at least some interest in, in counterposing the sort of Anglo-American NATO world order than China. I mean, China, uh, but then again, now that Russia is being flung into the arms of China, it's very interesting. But the argument goes that essentially, uh, well, I mean, this, again, we'd have to argue about uh, for the, another time about the whole, the war in general going on right now. But essentially, I mean, it's viewed as that Russia is the only power that is at least capable of putting a monkey wrench within the sort of global liberal neoliberal world order uh, along with, I mean, I guess along with China, but then China brings its own complications and problems. I mean, there's very, there's only a few right wingers. I think that will go out their way and say that, you know, China is like, you know, uh, the archetype of the strong man. But I think uh, as a whole, uh, Russia is the more logical option. I mean, obviously, because now that there's sort of like a religious fervor against Russia, I mean, it's kind of cemented this notion that now domestic um, culture war politics is now grafted onto this war between Russia and Ukraine. So that's like, again, another impetus for people to almost instinctually go, well, you know, I hate the NATO uh, Anglo-American world order. Therefore, I'm going to support Russia. And, uh, but then there's a few people that, of course, say, you know, Ukraine is filled with uh, based Nazis and nationalists, so therefore we should support them. Uh, but, you know, that's very few and far between. The majority impulse is that if I'm a dissident in the West, either in the political right, especially in the right, or like, let's say, Red Scare, Glenn Greenwald, sort of like alt-left people, the impulse is that, you know, despite all their flaws, at least Russia is a more honest power in the world than, say, the Anglo-Americans. So yeah. That's... All right. Well, Chris, uh, what, what do you what do you think of that? Yeah. So let, let me hit something. So there's this idea going around that this that this war has basically shoved China and Russia together, and yeah. I, I don't think that's really an accurate assessment. I think it's more like people realized how close these were, and it definitely pushed them together a little bit further. But I think it was like I, I think it was like you know the, the the analogy I used the other day is is this is like uh, you know, you yelling at your daughter when she says that her uh, her roommate is really that that has tattoos and a nose ring isn't really her roommate. It's her boyfriend. And you can't say that you yelling at them brought them closer together because they were secretly married six months ago. OK, mm. I mean, and, you know, to, to use a slightly different analogy is is like, look, let, let's not let's not beat around the bush. China and Russia have a lot of reasons to not like each other. OK. Oh, yeah. I mean, tons. Yeah. OK. But. Yeah. This is like this is like, you know, the Russian mob and the, and the Italian mob teaming up saying, wow, this this sheriff is, is a real pain in our ass. So, you know, we, we may do some 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 drug deals together, but we got a bigger problem right now. And we got to deal with this shit before we start fighting each other again. OK, but do you think it comes from there's still some resentment, at least to the older people within the Politburo, that the way that Russia sort of like abandoned them in the 70s they're like you know what china you're on your own can't help you or is it more like is it like their cultural differences or what what would be like mm -hmm. the sort of shelling points that would 
push away China and Russia from each other? Well, you know, China's China's. So on on the negative side, on the negative side, I mean, look, China has tried to steal military hardware from okay. uh, from yeah. Russia the same yeah. way they've tried to steal it from everybody. Okay, mm. so I mean, and Russia knows this. Okay, this this is. It's not a secret. You know, China has openly talked about, you know, reclaiming parts of eastern uh, Eastern Russia, you know, like up near, uh, you know, north of... Uh, well, in uh, Siberia, there was like a whole uh, area that the Russian government gave to China for a period, I think, of 40 years, but it might as well have been given over forever. I don't remember what the exact uh, area is. Yeah, and China's talked about large parts of that coming back to China. Okay, so so let's not let's not gloss over it. Um, at the same time, they both say we have a we have a stronger interest in a bigger common enemy. I mean, right. they, I mean, make make absolutely no mistake about that. And this has been going on, and they've been coming much closer for some time now. If one of them stabs the other in the back at some point in the future, it's going to be no surprise. It's going to happen, okay? But until that until that day comes, mm. yes, they will be close. They will be close allies, and they will fight for each other. And they will fight, uh, and they will fight. Uh, you know, Western democracy. I just but want to you, rewind a, a little bit here. Sorry, Gio. I just want to rewind oh, a little yeah. bit here yeah. to the specific thing I was bringing up because I do want to talk about the relationships between uh, Russia and China. But before that, I just wanted to get like a general outlook here on the kind of uh, world that uh, people value. So, for example, yourself, Christopher, you've been in China. I know you've met a lot of wonderful people there. But at the same time, there are certain things about the government, like you said, like the corruption, the inflexibility, uh, certain things in this top down style government that you recognize as being detrimental. There are people who are in the West right now. Uh, several of whom I think are uh, watching the show right now are saying like, oh, love it, shit, shut up. And those people, they are the ones who they're probably living, I don't know, some of them are living in the Middle East or whatever. Some of them are living in the West and they look towards these uh, top-down dictatorial powers as being the cure for what they see as being this uh, globalistic, homogenous uh, liberalism that's so destructive. <laughs> Just from a philosophical or whichever perspective, what is your personal view on that particular view towards life as far as a wish to live under this dictatorship, which would, as they see it, take care of a lot of uh, these uh, problems? So I think I, I think it's one of those things that the, the, the way that I thought about it when I was in China um, is there's absolutely a portion of the population population in all these countries that I've been to that absolutely yearns to just, you know, go about their lives without being told what to do. Okay. Whether it was Iranian or Pakistani students that I, that I had that uh, said, man, I wish I could just, you know, go have a beer and stuff like that. Okay. I mean, simple things that you and I take for granted, to be honest, or whether it was um, Chinese students just wanting to, you know, do whatever they wanted to do on the Internet, like, you know, playing video games. OK, I mean, again, not even necessarily political stuff, just things that their government steps in and says, no, you can't do that. Um, I think there absolutely is a significant yearning for that type of freedom. Um, I'll also say a lot of times when you talked about the import when you would talk to people there were there was a significant portion of the population 
where it was like trying to describe three dimensions to somebody who lives in a two dimensional world. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how else to explain it. It's like the, the, the color and richness of life that you, that you can experience as compared to someone that has only ever lived in a two dimensional world. Mm. Um, and they, 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 their mind almost can't understand uh, what it's like to live in a world like that. Um, and, and that's why, you know, look, I, I, I absolutely make no apologies for saying things like, you know, if you are a member of the PLA or a Chinese princeling, you probably, you know, shouldn't be given a visa into the United States. I'll also say mm. things like, I absolutely, you know, uh, believe firmly that America should be, you know, continue to welcome immigrants with open arms, you know, from countries like Ukraine and uh, Hong Kong and places like that. Um, because, you know, that absolutely, I think, makes us better. I think it um, it absolutely, you know, it, it, it keeps us pushing forward. You know, those, I mean, there's a reason a lot of those people that come over and such a high percentage of, you know, like uh, unicorn startups, you know, uh, have the involvement of uh, immigrants in some capacity. Mm. Um, so I'm absolutely a fan of that type of, uh, of, of, of that type of thinking. Well, same thing was happening with the uh, with the Russian immigrants. So, for example, with uh, myself and my family coming to the United States, it is a similar situation where it's interesting that in the uh, peanut gallery, people who are reactionary that have this view of, oh, the West is so degenerate and, you know, the New World Order and, uh, you know, uh, Western civilization is, you know, rotten to the core, that despite this minority of people, if most people are asked where they would rather live, they would not go to Russia. They probably would not go well, to China. Oh, you don't know, lad. They haven't been given the option to... But they would definitely go to the United States. They would go to any Western power that's so despised by uh, a lot of the people that have a lot of time on their this hands is to all, write. No, no, this but, is this, all, no but this, this is, is a very cringe, important, this is but this is a very important think... thing because I'm trying to figure this out. Oh. What Christopher just said right now has to do with what the average people he's ta talked with in China long for and yearn for from what i understand there wasn't the reverse that i just pointed out that's happening online right now or a lot of well, western that's, that's people. why what's so amazing is, is if, if you look at the number of let's say uh princelings from china or children from russian oligarchs where are so many of them based where where do so many of them have second passports Okay, I mean London or New York, probably London, New York. It's play. It's places like it's it's places like that. Um, you know, there there's a well known writer for the South China Morning Post, and this is a firebrand, anti American, anti Canadian guy. Uh, China's taking over the world. You know, all this kind of good stuff. He's he's spewing this nonsense. Um, and where does he live? Canada. Okay. Um, and yeah, so, but that's so, a demoralization absolutely. tactic of the Chinese. I mean, <laughs> the Chinese, they fund, um, like, you know, indigenous groups and so forth here in Canada. And they hide a lot of their assets in Canadian real estate. They totally destroyed our real estate market. Um, so I'm no fan of the Chinese. But I think that, um, I don't know, I this, this seems like, okay, there's two sides that are sort of confusing the baubles of a system for the actuality of it. So you and Lev, like most liberals, they confuse sort of these tangential freedoms for the whole, ignoring the sort of deeply systemic problems with our sort of Western liberal system. But at the same time, I will say that a lot of reactionaries online who are cinephiles, 
they will look at the Chinese banning pornography and banning uh, video games and banning various other degenerate forms of media. And they're like, oh, that's based in red pill. But then they're ignoring how you can't even enter your home without a rapid test in 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And your life is controlled by a social no, but that's system. But that's the excuse that you're talking about with China, which I no, agree with saying, you on. But, uh, no, but why, do you, why that... do you excuse Russia? That's what I don't understand. Why do you excuse what they're doing? Well, first of all, you said something in the beginning, Lev. You said that they, there's sort of uh, corruption and people leaving. Listen, there is a massive purge going on, Lev, in Russia. Putin is purging his generals, putting them under house arrest. Putin is stopping the flow of currency outside of Russia. So they are, in fact, in my position, a, sorry, in my opinion, a better position than even China, because it seems that China keeps chopping heads off. It's just not working whatsoever, Lev, because so many people have hid their assets elsewhere. But so, Lev, what do you have to say to that? To, to put well, let me put it to you Virginia's this way. Let me put it to you this way. So, Gio, let me put it to you this way. All right, all right. When you talk about, like, so one of the things is, is they say, well, America has problems, okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and look, I'm not I'm not about to say America or any Western place is, is, is faultless and all that kind of good stuff. But think of it this way. Which problems would you rather have? I don't know which don't, pro uh, which problems would you which problems would you rather have? So first of all, like you talk about, okay, let's take racism as the the one people are one people are talking about. Let me tell you, and I say this, and I can say this with one hundred percent certainty: the racism that you will encounter in countries like China, it's not even close. It's not even close to how much better. The, the the racism that you might encounter in the United States is okay. Oh yeah, Hands no down. doubt, it's not no argument. Close. Yeah, okay. that's very so true. like, yeah, I'm not about to say that it's perfect. When you look at you know which problems you would rather have, I don't think I I, I mean there's there's very few people I think where that would be much mm. of a debate. No, but I think that um, like when it comes to North America, Western Europe, I mean, what I mean is sort of like not just cultural degradation, of course, the demographic problems that we face is sort of uh but then china has just, their own demographic yeah problems, well just so like china that. and just yeah. like russia i mean you're describing things that all these countries are russia, facing. okay we'll give you that love russia does face severe demographic problems but things unless putin is no but what to, is russia doing of, well this is what i understand from this conversation what is it what do you about mean? they're doing many things well like what just give it time give it time love give no it no time. in all seriousness what is Trust russia plan what is russia um, doing well I, we okay. gotta know okay <sighs> What is Russia doing well? I think that they, they're willing to recognize the problems that they face more than our sort of rulership class in <laughs> North America and in Western Europe. They're sort of, they like, this is why Putin is engaging in these actions because he knows that, you know, he faces severe demographic problems in the future. And there will be a time where there probably won't be as much military age men in Russia. And that's why he's stealing um, from his own country bigger than ever throughout Lev, the last I mean, 10 years i don't understand the logic here well we're stealing from our own well, see the okay chris this no, is this see, is what i'm trying to figure out geo says can, we're, no, we're compare, doing the same thing compare. the united states is just, just the same, the same as thing we're Russia. doing the same thing in a bigger level bigger That's the yeah problem. bigger level doing, bigger level it's it's not just a matter of just stealing for like you know sort of like a an oligarch stealing from the people it's more of like you have the the political class within america in particular is essentially not only do they hate their own population, but they're essentially giving up their own future for ideals that are incredibly culturally, politically, in my opinion, spiritually corrosive to any population, to any civilization. That's what we're dealing with. Russia, it's like this sort of, 
you know, pissy any corruption and oligarch stuff. But you whoa, can't whoa, whoa, really hold on, compare hold that. On, hold on, hold on, I got it. Okay, so, go ahead, okay. go ahead. Chris. So, so mm-hmm. you look at any Russian oligarch. You look at any Russian oligarch. Let's just, I mean, I, I don't know of one Russian oligarch that has clean money, for lack of a better. Oh term. yeah. Well, uh, I, I mean, maybe there is, but I don't know of one where it's like, okay, there's there's clean money here. Okay, so like, here here's the thing. So. Let's even take the, the the Trumps or the Bidens, okay? Like just as as obvious examples, the corruption amounts that we're talking about with those guys, with that with Russia or anything else that's rumored, is I mean it, it it's it's pennies compared to the corruption that you're talking about out of China or Russia. I mean it's it's literal pennies on the dollar, okay? Even if it's one hundred percent true, it's pennies on the dollar compared to the corruption that you see out of Russia or China. And also the way the like people the are actually living there. That's another big difference, Geo. You can have real quick, real quick. I just want to oh. put this in there, okay? So Geo harassment in the chat. Hashtag Geo harassment. So yeah. in the early '90s, <laughs> when Putin made up this lie about him moonlighting as a taxi driver, what he was actually doing was running Saint Petersburg. Even though Subchak was the uh, mayor, he was the guy who was. Uh, uh, Putin was the guy who was taking the uh, aid money that all the governments were sending. No, no, well, hold, on, hold, on, hold on. So Putin was taking all the money that the Western governments were oh, sending into Russia as aid, and he was then using that money to purchase to purchase to purchase cocaine instead of using that to uh, aid the Russians, which is why a lot of Russian people experienced starvation during the early '90s. And then he was using that cocaine money to finance all of his people. But when the economy no, Finally, hold on, let me finish. That when was the economy, my point. hold on, please. When the economy finally started to, oh. you know, uh, get up and running in the mid '90s to late '90s, that's when Putin started, you know, started ascending the leadership ladder, and he was riding this high while the stealing was going on even more than ever. The people didn't really notice it as much during that time, though, because there there were boom times. But now the people are starting to notice it a lot more. And this is the big difference where despite however you would argue what the levels of corruption are in the United States and Western countries, the fact of the matter is the kind of corruption that goes on in Russia ends up affecting the average Russian person significantly to the point that they ha- can't get good health care to the Lev, point this that is my point. they have outhouses that... in 80% of the or however many percent of the uh, villages there. They don't even have a r- running water or bathroom. But this is this is my point. This is our disagreement, Lev. All right. Is that Martyr Made did a great podcast recently? Derek Cooper did a great podcast on this leading up to the Ukraine conflict. Is that our disagreement is that you think that Putin is like, you know, all like the the sort of, uh, you know, like the Austrian painter and he stole from the people. And yeah, did he steal from the people? Of course. Yes. Not denying that. But I think that when you have Western NGOs, when you have heads of Western banks flying into Russia to loot everything clean using selective oligarchs that some of them Putin got rid of that were basically plundering the ex-Soviet economy, that were doing uh, terrible deals and advising them in terrible terrible capacity. Even people, he's like the number one neoliberal ghoul. You have Jeffrey Sachs even saying that what they did to Russia was a crime. And this is Jeffrey Sachs. This is like, you know, you want to talk about neoliberalism. The problem is that you can't solely lay blame on Putin and his, and his oligarchs and so forth. Even though he was the- stealing during that time he was stealing but every at every single turn it seemed that the west had one deal for everyone else in the washington census and another deal for russia and it went all the way up to 2008 with georgia 
when they had they put in the puppet and all the way up to when they got rid of the guy in Ukraine. It's the same pattern over and over again. There is one deal for Russia. There is one deal for everybody else. Before that is before I would uh, before I would love for Chris to respond well, to Chris, that. Chris, how well, about just Chris weigh in before you spew some more anti-Russian propaganda? No, real, <laughs> so real, no, real quick, no, no, real quick before Chris responds. A lot of the money that you're talking about that the Russian oligarchs uh, stole from Russia. A good guy. He is not a where good do you man, think obviously. that money went? That money went to Western banks. It that money right went to Western, pockets, Western it went right real into estate. Sachs, it yes. went right into JP Morgan. Yes, yes from I the Russian oligarchs under Putin. Okay, uh, Chris. And, and also the Bank of London as well. That London had a like London still has a huge part in the Russian like you know oligarchs going back and forth from you know. Yeah, so that again, Putin still. So so, yeah. so basically, what you're arguing for. Is that the Russian? Is that uh, the Western uh, Western banks, etc., shouldn't have shouldn't have facilitated what Russia did earlier? We should have cut them off ten and twenty years ago. Okay. No, Be not as. That's what that's what you have to. That's logically that's what you have to be arguing because you, you're saying. It, is there was all this corruption and the Western banks were a part of it. So then, yes, we should have. We basically should have done what we're doing now ten years ago, twenty years ago. That's that's the only logical that's the only logical outcome. No, no, what I mean, no, what I mean is that I think during Yeltsin's reign of terror is that uh, I know Lev likes to look on your face. Um, I I think that the problem is they were essentially facilitating. Like this is what I mean by corruption is like a construct because it's corruption when everyone else does it, but when the West does it, when the West implodes economies from within by sending in certain NGOs and advisors, it's not corruption, it's foreign policy. That's what I'm saying. I think that they should have handled Russia in a more diplomatic and less, uh, you know, a less, let's say, evil way than what they did in the 90s, where they were just picking them clean and the Chinese helped pick them clean as well. Like obviously, and there was corruption within and there was oligarchs and so forth. So, um, I, I don't, no, but just to be clear, it was the Russian, off, it was the Russian oligarchs that were picking them clean. I don't understand why you're saying that the Western at the powers behest of, at the behest of Western advisors. Okay. So, so what you're saying is that at the behest, at the behest the of Western Putin, advisors, Putin was stealing money from Russia at no, the behest not of Western. Putin, not, this was before Putin. This was before Putin. What, what was this before was, Putin? He was there from well, the start. This is during Yeltsin lab. This, that, is during Putin, Yeltsin. What, this is what's confusing me about your statements. They make no sense. Putin was there from the early nineties. He was running all of this stuff. This is why it makes absolutely His no sense. His power wasn't cemented till till like the very end of not at all. Know, His power was there from the Chechen War. No, not at all. His power was there from the very start. If we're talking about the money that was supposed to go to the aid to the Russians, ended up going to Putin, ended up going to his friends. Exactly, it was there friend. from the It's very not corruption. Start. It's lobbying. There so, you go. so Christopher, um, I, I don't know. Like, what do you make of this? So, so look. First of all, I'm not about to say. So, so first of all, when you say Jeffrey Sachs said, so Jeffrey Sachs was the guy advising them. So if Jeffrey Sachs says, hey, we did, a, we, you know, we, you know, uh, the U.S. did a bad job. I mean, Jeffrey Sachs needs to look in the mirror, number one. No, okay? but he said the people like when he went back to Washington to broker deals that they were basically stonewalling him and they were like doing a lot of different tricks behind his back. That's what his contention was, if I recall. But yeah. Jeffrey Sachs, so you talk about what the West was doing. Jeffrey Sachs was the guy that you should be yelling at. I mean, he no, was the guy I, that was I, I doing him all as of well, this. Obviously, don't worry about it. But <laughs> he and, no, he I, and the, the other guys were doing this. The other thing is, is like, look, everybody knew, even back in Yeltsin's day, it wasn't a country. It, it was basically a giant mob conglomerate. 
yeah yeah i mean everybody knew that from 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 Mm. day one i mean that was that was apparent you know basically very early on in yeltsin's day so like look i'm not about to say could 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 the west have done things a little bit better sure absolutely can you blame the west for how russia has turned out over you know the past couple of decades no, it's 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 not. I mean, Russia and Putin and those guys have basically said this is how we're setting up uh, the country. This is this is how things are going to run, and that's and that's how it's run. I mean, and and also if we're talking about this mob rule that uh, Chris, well, not mob rule, rule by the mob rather that Christopher was talking about, who was in charge of that? The KGB. And Putin was part well, of the KGB I, I at misspoke. the time. I mean, I mean, Jeff, Jeffrey Sachs he regretted his shock doctrine. Back when Naomi Klein was, but the shock doctrine the it shock did doctrine. end up actually working out in the end oh because God, Russia's come economy on, went come up. On, oh, oh, <laughs> no! Why do you think? Why do you think? No, but why do you think? Why do you think Putin became so popular during that time? Because he was riding the high when the economy was finally getting to be good. No, but that's the whole. But Lev, the whole point again, as as I much as I hate Naomi Klein, which she's become, I I think she was correct to assert that the shock doctrine, kind of like crack cocaine, will give you a temporary high. But as soon as those, you know, bills come due, then everything just bam, just goes right downhill, Lev. And that's what happened in the early two thousands. Look at look at what's happened. Look well, at what's and, happened because the to, as well. to Russia is all of the tech all of the tech has has gone into increasingly parasitic type tech, either military, security type of stuff. Yeah. Um, the early types of tech that you had, because you had companies like Yandex and others, and those guys have basically fled the country. Okay, the, the guys that did that, you know, they now run Telegram out of the UAE. Okay, they're like, you know, we're not we're not going back to Russia. I mean, I'm sure that they fly back sometimes. I mean, of course, but you know, they're like, hey, we want to be tech entrepreneurs. And so, you know, this is the you know the the state of what we're seeing in Russia today is driven by Putin's decisions over time of how the economy is going to function. Well, yeah, I, I, like no argument there. I think that again, like even since the Soviet Union days, they've always had that blindness towards their military and towards other in- industries. I mean, that's true. But, I mean, no, but again, not, I'm not saying not just... Putin is like this uh, savior. He's uh, Heil Putler. I'm not saying that. I'm just no, saying you were that... saying that. But anyway. No, no, it was... no, wait. This is a great point. This is a great point by our good friend. Uh, is it PCS? Uh, no, sorry. Cyber Ninja Zero. Lev. Putin's a pet of the oligarchs. Also, Lev. Putin also had power and was the main mastermind the whole time. So yeah, no, which he, one is it, Lev? I'll tell you. Was Putin just a bitch of the oligarchs? No, he was, he was not. Mastermind? He was not a bitch of the oligarchs. He was the mastermind behind a lot of the goings on at the time. I never said he was a pet of the oligarchs at all. I never made that statement. But you're saying that the oligarchs can do whatever they want. Yes. And they could just. Yeah, because Putin doesn't I give a know. crap. Putin lets the oligarchs do whatever they want so long uh, as they don't threaten his power. He's purging them, Lev. He's doing another purge. Uh, you're, That's. I okay, Christopher. I'm sorry. Geo, I love you, but you live in a parallel universe because oh my, oh no, no, my no, God, no, 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 in all seriousness, because I don't understand it. You have somebody who has proven time and time again to rob the country blind, giving money to all of his friends throughout what Christopher mentioned right now, all the people who actually made a good economy getting out of Russia as quickly as possible. So I bet that what would have happened after this, uh, after this uh, economic uh, whatever, whatever it was called, uh, you know, with these uh, World Bank people, you know, these people you all hate, 
what would have happened if the Russian government headed up by Putin did not steal way more than they were doing in the early 90s. I bet that Russia would have actually solidified into a pretty good economy. It would have been similar to countries like Lithuania and uh, so on and so forth. And I don't think there would have been anything. Uh, I don't think there would have been any problems with trade. And in fact, I think that if that was the case, Ukraine would actually be much more favorable towards maybe even joining Russia if Russia showed itself to be the kind of place that you would want to do business in. Well, half of Ukraine does. No, never mind. I'm not. Anyway, let's go, back to, let's go back let's to, go back to let's go back to China. Back to China. Yes, but yeah, but I want to I want to go back to oh. China in relation to Russia. So there was a spy, former spy named Yuri Shvets, who <laughs> talked about how China prefers soft power. China doesn't really want to uh, you know cause any trouble with any other nation. They prefer soft power. But do you think that there is something? in terms of the war that's going on right now that may have been set up in a certain way by China for certain uh, selfish purposes. So the way that I would always phrase it is I don't think it depends on what you mean by soft power. So like we, we typically think of soft power as, you know, people, you know, having McDonald's and watching an episode of friends or something like that. And so they have a favorable opinion of the U S um, I don't think we can think of Chinese soft power in the same way. Okay. China gets soft power um, in a slightly different way. And the way that I would describe it is this. The, the son of the leader of a country um, gets invited to dinner. Um, and uh, the next day, the leader of the country makes an announcement about how they've struck a deal with China. Now, what they don't tell you is that there were some hookers and a suitcase of cash or something like that at the dinner with the son of the ruler. But uh, the, 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 the son of the ruler puts in a good word for the, uh, you know, about uh, the Chinese conglomerate that is bidding on a deal or something like that. OK, so China doesn't go in guns blazing, for lack of a better term. They don't go in and, you know, smack you around. But they absolutely, let's say, pull strings behind the scenes uh, to make sure that uh, that that happens. Okay, that that what they want uh, happens, and this is why. Like, if, if you look at how they operate, this is why universities, whether it's in the wet, whether it's in the U.S., the U.K., uh, places like that. This is why. Um, you know, lots of places get uh, effectively CCP donations. Um, if you look at uh, if you look at uh, the if you look at the U.S. Uh, at, at, at universities, probably the two most two of the most famous universities in the U.S. that have China centers um, are basically funded by the CCP. Okay, I mean, how, how my, my university is that? had a China center, a cultural with a with a Confucius statue in the front. So is that the Confucius Institute? Is that is that the ones we're talking about? No, no, it's, it's these are these are China centers at universities, and I don't yeah. want to get in trouble with the people at at the. At, these are very famous universities that have a, a very well known roster of professors that that study China, um, and I don't want to get in trouble with them, so I'm not going to name the specific universities. Um, but absolutely, they take uh, they're basically funded by the CCP, and I can guarantee you they know it, and they absolutely uh, change how they speak about China. Um, on account of it. Hmm. Um, companies the same way. Okay. Um, China basically has, has put companies, um, foreign companies that deal in China 
on notice that you cannot just uh, not say anything about China. You have to actively lobby your home government for favorable treatment for us, or we're going to harm you. Okay. So basically every company that is doing business in China is turned into an agent for China. Okay. This is why, like, this is why um, I was told a story um, about a well-known multinational that was lobbying against a uh, against uh, the, the the forced labor bill that ultimately passed the U.S. Congress. And uh, this person asked, "Well, wait a minute. Why are you lobbying against this bill? You don't even have a manufacturing center in China." Or you don't even have a manufacturing center in Xinjiang. You don't even export this product to the U.S. Why? Why are you even? Why do you have any interest in this bill? And they basically said, China told us if we don't lobby against this bill, they're going to make our life in China very, very difficult. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we talk about this, soft power is let's say it's more like mob protection money, soft power. Okay, mm. it's like mm. you give us some money and we won't make and there won't be problems mm. for you. But they don't want to show any hostilities as far as well, other than the uh, uh, saber rattling with uh, Taiwan at the moment. They're not the ones that are showing hostilities. It almost seems like Russia, kind of like with that picture that was posted in The Economist that I did the edit of with the uh, worry bear meme and the Winnie the Pooh. Uh, it's kind of it kind of seems like Russia is a pet of China's that they use to go out in certain places and uh, expand a certain amount of territory. At least it appears that way or appears that way to Yuri Schwetz. Do you think that there is something that China, maybe not now with the whole thing being a shit show, but that China may have wanted to gain from Russia expanding its reach outwards towards Ukraine and possibly other areas? Does China benefit from this? I think that I think one of the, the the most obvious things is 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 giving China a very clear blueprint about how they need to plan to take Taiwan and make no mistake about it they are planning on taking Taiwan. You think that's uh, a certainty, like that they're actually going to take military action to? Uh... So when I say military action, I think there are a range of military actions. You know, uh, it could be a naval blockade. It could be precipitating a crisis of some kind by ramming fishing boats. Um, I think there's any number of things that it could be. Um, but yes, absolutely. They are They are absolutely. I mean, she is recently, they, they recently changed the language about this. Uh, for basically the final solution to the Taiwan problem for a new oh, world. God. Final solution. oh God! Okay, so yeah. yes, absolutely, yeah. they are that. And so people that don't think that that is uh, a very real possibility, um, I, I think they are they are very poorly mistaken. Mm. That is absolutely but, uh, a very real possibility. So you you live in America now, right? Um, yes. I I, I want, I'm curious though because in Canada. It's sort of similar, but I'm wondering when it comes specifically to the amount, the sheer amount of politicians that have basically been bought off by the Chinese. I wonder specifically the ambiguity with the Republicans in particular, because we know that the Democrats for many years have been basically bought off by China. But when it comes to Republicans, there are some who, you know, maybe watch Tucker Carlson, who like are more skeptical of the Chinese. But then there is others in the Republican Party who are like, neocons and maybe pretend that they're against both china and now russia i mean some of them are even more 
severely anti-Russian. Like they think it's the Cold War again. Like it's John Birch Society. It is the Cold um, War again. I, well, Lev, please, please, enough <laughs> that nonsense. Um, um, but where do you see the Republicans in particular as they stand towards China? Are they more hostile to China now or less hostile? Because it seems that they still they still get money from China. I mean, some of them in particular. And especially. the Fang Fang can't forget Fang Fang. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the way I think of it, the way I think of it is this these days is that um, the, the hard left and the hard right are, it is, is it's kind of like a circle and the hard left and the hard right meet at this crazy juncture of the universe where they're not really against China or Russia. They're, they're kind of like, you know, it's American imperialism that is causing these problems with China. Right. Okay. Well, I, right. I say that about Russia, not China. <laughs> I'm different. <laughs> different. Okay. I do not There's... trust the Canadian. I do not trust the Chinese. We can get into that. But go ahead. I'm sorry to cut you off. And, and I, I don't mean to pick on either side because there's crazies on both sides. I mean, there, 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 there truly are crazies on both sides when it comes to, oh, yeah. to China and Russia. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. that the, the primary difference with, uh, the, let's say, the mainstream left and the mainstream right, and when it comes to foreign policy, I'm probably a little bit more on the right when it comes to foreign policy, um, is that is to, to me the way i would describe it is this i think the left the mainstream left and the mainstream right agree a lot on the problems that china and russia present okay mm -hmm. i think where there's a significant difference is i think the the is is what i would call like either the methods or the costs that uh that that where they come into play. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the, the joke is, is that, you know, the left is, is, is ready, willing and able to start a hashtag campaign against China. Okay. Um, the, re the, 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 the West who's maybe, or, or the right who is maybe, and I don't like this. I don't think this is necessarily a good descriptor, but maybe a little bit more I, uh, isolationist um, is, is much more willing to maybe put on tariffs and things like that um, to it. So I think the mainstream left and the mainstream right, where the real disagreement is, is what are the methods or the costs that you're willing for your policies to to bear to be able to confront Russia or or China? I mean, to be honest, I don't think anywhere in the United States, I don't think any party has is 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 saying let's go let's go send troops to to the Ukraine as as an example. Um, I don't think anyone that I've heard of yeah, really well. make that argument. There, there are some, like, I mean, Lindsey Graham is, like, pretty close to that, actually. Like, some of the rhetoric coming out of, like, the, the no-fly zone thing is interesting because people literally think that there's some, I don't know, going to be some kind of, like, uh, dome that's totally neutral that's going to protect mm. Ukraine. No, it's like that that would essentially constitute a military intervention. Well, there was, there was an announcement uh, recently made where if there's any incursion into, I believe, the area of Poland then that's it that would be then uh the uh, poland's a nato country right? yes exactly the trouble yeah, right oh, there yeah, that, yes I don't think, I don't think but uh, no but the but the other thing i would equate this to let's say uh you know like the standard leftist sjw type that people on the right have been uh, fighting against where one of i think the truest and most important points that they made about these uh, reactionary leftists is they said that if you apologize you already lose every single time when it comes to the uh, people that want to cancel you. And when it comes to a country like Russia, when it comes to a country that could say, you know, if I, if I go in here and you resist, then I'm just going to use my nukes, you know? So, 
oh, you're weak. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I think it's the same mentality with the leftists, where if you bow down, if you let them get away with it, they're going to keep going and they're not going to stop. So that's why when it comes to solving the situation we're in right now, and I wish it gets solved as quickly as possible, the idea that a country that's already started to acquire territory, and you could even see it by the size as far as Chechnya, and then we have uh, Georgia, and then we have these uh, areas, you know, like it just keeps going more in terms of but population. It's, it's, because, it's because the West pushed... Never mind. Never mind. Go ahead. So, Go so, ahead. The, so I think there's, I think there's two very interesting things. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely not because of the West. I mean, Putin has absolutely, and and she has made it very clear for his part of the world that basically both of them see the fall of the Soviet Union as the cataclysmic event of the 20th century, and right, basically right. they each in their own way want to restore a utopian vision of basically either the Soviet Union. Or let's say pre, uh, you know, twentieth century, and then the nineteenth century Chinese Empire, which maybe even you know comprises parts of the South China Sea and things like that. Okay, and 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 you know related territories. So I can tell you this is why, like the Philippines and Vietnam and Malaysia, even though they may do business deals, they are absolutely on high alert to anything that China is doing. And so th there's this. And this is what I think is so dangerous about it is there is this almost messianic idea in these two guys' heads about what they're fighting for. It has it has no bearing on, you know, people talk about like geopolitics or strategy or army strengths and all that kind of good stuff. And I'm like, that that's who cares? That doesn't matter. And people look at me and say, what do you mean that doesn't matter? It, you know, we got tanks and we got RP. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. I'm like, when you have this messianic idea in your head about what you're fighting for, it doesn't matter. You'll just throw more men. You'll 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 throw more people at the problem. You'll you know wreck whatever you have to because it's this it's this utopian um, messianic idea in your head about about what you're fighting for. But but do you think that now that I mean the West we are in a period of incredible exhaustion because we think that our messianic idea from previous decades ago won, maybe it did, but do you think that politics going forward? will be sort of what people like uh, Lev's favorite philosopher from Russia calls the uh, <laughs> calls the uh, civilization state mm. that Xiping definitely does have an a, like a middle kingdom idea of China and who knows mm. maybe he will encourage into Vietnam because you know despite them supporting them during the Vietnam war i mean the history between the Vietnamese and, and the Chinese i mean you know it goes back forever right centuries but do you th and the same with Russia right and same maybe the Middle East is amb ambiguous. I mean, there's. I, I don't think competing... the Vietnamese like China very much. No, that's know. what I mean. Yeah. I mean, if if China can take Taiwan, I mean, I I say there's a greater argument actually to say that China is in a better position mm. to take other territories than even than than people think that Putin is going to. Yeah. You know, as soon well, as he steamrolls Ukraine, he's going to go to Poland and Hungary and wherever. I think that there's more of an argument to be made that perhaps Xi Ping wants to control. Mm. You know, well, already in a way, things Xi Jinping is controlling a lot of people's minds by the fact that people are talking about, oh, the West is doomed, the West is destroyed. I know I keep noticing this ideological subversion everywhere in the reactionary right. Yeah, but that's that's. Oh, come on. Though. That's no, it's part I, and parcel, I, I think, of that. China's strategy to de to delegitimize any power that the West has. Meanwhile, at least I know, Christopher, about you. 
But what I'm seeing right now is kind of an inverse, where on one hand, you have these commercials coming out of China and Russia showing, you know, we have this manly army and we're very powerful, unlike these, you know, Westerners. And uh, what we're seeing right now is the opposite, that their army is crap and their people don't know what they're doing. Meanwhile, um, the Ukrainians are, are doing great. So anyway, uh, I don't want to get into that, numbers, that too much. No, but the point is that there is this ideological subversion. But to Gio's question, uh, Christopher, do you see there being this multipolar world? And also, do you think that I am right in terms of seeing this ideological subversion happening in the U.S. from China? So I think there's so so let's put it this way. I don't think America has really woken up. I think it's waking up, but I don't think America has really woken up to the depth of, you know, America likes to think that it almost lives in a postmodern society where ideas and, you know, ideology are kind of a thing of the past. Yeah. And yeah. They, 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 they really aren't. They, 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 they really aren't. Um, and to Xi and Putin, this is absolutely deeply ideological. It is, I mean, it is, uh, it is deeply about, you know, democracy versus non-democracy. Um, and I don't think that's something that America has necessarily really woken up to. I think there's parts of it that have, but I think there's a, there's a lot that really hasn't, because I think a lot of Americans, and I would even say a lot of people that follow China, you know, they view kind of, she is playing in his sandbox and doing his China thing, and they don't really view that that she has this vision of the world that he wants to execute and how he wants the world to become basically like, like China. Um, you know, you have people that work in the Biden administration that, that basically made their name um, writing papers about how, you know, China was, uh, was, was not really expansionist and it wasn't ideological and, you know, we could work with them and things like that. Um, and this is, this is, I think that a lot of the thinking that permeates a, a lot of, you know, the, uh, the administration that is, that is in power right now in the United States and even a lot of people in, in influential positions. But do you think that that kind of thinking also stems from, I know I keep using the term ideological subversion, but again, as somebody who saw a lot of these, not personally saw, but uh, read up on and understands the reasoning behind a lot of these subversions back in the 60s and 70s from the USSR, I can imagine there are similar things going on regarding China influencing pretty much you know, many people in power into having a certain thinking about China and a certain thinking about the United States. I don't even think it's I, I think it's a lot more a lot more simple because I think actually China's done a very good job of understanding what motivates individuals. Um, and there's there's something that in China they call blue, green, yellow. And I forget what one of the colors stands for, but it's pretty simple. It's basically money and sex. Money, power, and sex. Okay. And so, you know, look, there's a reason that individuals very closely linked to the CCP give money to universities. There's a reason that those individuals give money to think tanks. Okay. Um, that That's not an accident. Okay. There's a reason that these people, that certain people are invited to give talks in China and stuff like that. Okay. I guarantee you, I mean, they literally have databases on people and how influential and all this other kind of good stuff that they are, that it, it's not an accident. Okay. And so a lot of times I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm not really influenced by China. I'm just going to argue that we shouldn't do anything to China. 
Okay. Yes, China is bad. And so one of the things you will see is you'll see a lot of people point to, actually, I wrote a paper about human rights abuses in China. We shouldn't do anything yet because we should, we should promote engagement. Dude, we've been promoting engagement for 20 years. What has changed? Actually, it's gotten significantly worse. Yes, but we should still promote engagement because they, they respect me. Uh. Well, great, guys. I mean, I, I, and so a lot of people I don't even think realize how, you know, I, I, I've made the joke that if Putin really wanted to undermine America, he should tell all his oligarchs to give money to, to U.S. universities. Yeah, I think Putin picked the wrong target. I think Putin picked the wrong target when it comes to the American far right. But uh, when it does come to Lev, okay, Lev, like, let's get this clear right away. All right, that, that's just that's a fiction of your imagination. I don't think that this <laughs> argument that Putin is funding the American far right—that's like. Well, I don't get any. I don't get any rubles in the mail, Lev. I, I don't. Mean, I don't think he needs to fund it. I think it's been operating on its own for some time. I think but... the problem is the problem is certain Western readers of that one your favorite philosopher in Russia think that you know he's Putin's boy and Putin cares about us. No, I'm under no illusion that Putin doesn't give a shit about American right wingers. No, it's, 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 no, true. it's not about but, giving a shit or not. It's more about implanting the idea that America is a failed state, that America's degenerate, that liberalism is wrong. But, that but is the thing that's point, been implanted. But can you not point to his recent speech, Empire of Lies, and pick out something that's wrong with what he said in terms of Americans, America's own cultural fault lines and its decline until like, well, this, is, no, I, but this I is why agree. I do. This is why I do break the rules in the first place because a lot of the problems that you bring up and people in the chat bring up, these China, are though. important. Well, one second. These are important problems. And honestly, Christopher, I think that a lot of liberal-minded people in the United States they don't pay attention to problems that a lot of people in the further reaches of the internet bring up just because they don't interact with each other before break the rules. That is, everybody subscribe. Oh. So this is why I think it's important to bring people together like that. But Again, being somebody from Russia, I do notice that there is this amazing influence of seeing Putin and his empire as being something that it is not by people in the far right. And my question to you, and this isn't even about just Russia, but about China uh, as well. Do you think, Christopher, that there is something to be gained or it's just a waste of time for countries like Russia and China to try to mimetically appeal to a lot of the more fringe elements of the internet is break there something the is there something break to be gained the, by that break the bigots that's a good one so so one of the things is is that you know just as an example if you actually go back and look in 2016 about how much money uh russia spent all the money that they could find that russia spent on stuff Actually, it's a piss. It's it's. I mean, it, it's like pissing in the ocean. I mean, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and and so the the way that I I think, and I think there's been a lot of research, public, academic, you know, various types of this. And, and here's how I've settled. And and China does the same thing. It's not about choosing a side. Okay. Because believe it or not, Putin spent money on pro Hillary stuff, you know, as, yeah. as well, too. And again, I'm not saying, as well. And, and, and I should emphasize, I'm not saying Putin was backing Hillary. That's not the point. That's, that's absolutely not the point. I don't want to get in trouble for saying Putin's backing this candidate or that candidate. It's not oh, the point. Fuck. Okay. I'm just pointing out that there was money that 
you know, Russia spent, you know, in pro Hillary uh, advertisements. And basically what, what, what the strategy is, 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 is not to necessarily back a specific candidate because I think Putin's smart enough to know, you know, my, my Facebook ads are not going to swing the election. Okay. Like I forget what it was. It was, it was like 20,000, I think it was less than 50,000 or something like that. I forget the exact number, but it's a pretty small amount of number in the grand scheme of things. But what it's about is about sowing discord. It's about it's about creating conflict, okay? Um, it, it's it's about it, it's about making people doubt the system, okay? And yes, before Putin, before she, you know, there were questions and all this kind of good stuff. But the entire point of I think what Putin and she really do with their misinformation campaigns is to create uh, is to create conflict, okay? And I think if it, you know. And I, I, I think there's something to this idea that if you look at a lot of like these social divides have really bubbled to the surface a lot more as there's been so much additional information uh, attempt given to trying to create by outside forces like Putin and Xi doesn't even matter what what people are fighting about as long as they're fighting. Yes. Okay. And, and so that's why, you know, myself, like, I don't want to say I would talk with, uh, you know, like, you know, I, I think more than anything is, is, is Americans and, you know, liberal, you know, citizens of liberal countries and things like that. More than anything, a lot of us just need to sit down and have a beer together. Okay? Exactly. Whatever, whatever side you're on. Okay. Because I think that's their real strategy. I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting. There was a comment over here saying uh, from Big Fish. And by the way, guys, need those super chats as well. Uh, but Big Fish says, if you doubt the intelligence of Kamala Harris, you're a Putler apologist. So this is the other very fun thing that I've noticed. And I think you've noticed this too. When you see all these posts on Twitter about the Avengers, uh, about Reddit, about all of these things that a lot of people, I think, kind of rightfully find to be cringe. They're taking these things and saying, oh, these people support these stupid superhero movies and they support Ukraine as well. You know, these people support the, uh, uh, what was it called, the uh, Transgender Story Hour and they support Ukraine as well. How could you even think of supporting Ukraine if all of these people that you hate also support it? And I think that in a way, the cringeness of leftist, you know, like a socially woke policy in the United States has been such a good ammunition for people on the other side. And I think it's been a great ammunition for people in Russia because a lot of, let's say, common sense minded people, they recognize that they you know, something's wrong with a lot of these policies. But as a result, they keep, you know, they keep just going to the other side of seeing fascism and having a dictatorship as being something that can remedy a lot of these situations. But I am kind of curious, though, when it comes to addressing these situations in the Western civilization that we currently have. And this is kind of going away from uh, the subject, and I want to bring it back, but just your personal views, Chris. Do you think that this is something that we can learn to reckon with and create a kind of society where we're not going to live in the hellscape a lot of people on that side imagine? Because they imagine it being like this live in the pods, eat the bugs, technocracy <laughs> controlling everything, you know, kind of system. If you say the wrong pronoun, then you're going to get arrested. Like that is the kind of reality that they imagine 
is being brought about from having a Western hegemony. And this is why they look towards Russia and sometimes towards China as being kind of like the, uh, the underdog fighting this overall technocracy. So I think that one of the things I, one of the places I would start out with that, with that question is I, I think we've gotten into this problem in, in, and I see this a lot in the United States. I can't speak as much for other countries, but we define ourselves by not what my opinion is on a matter based upon whatever principles I think are, are, are right, but we define our opinion based upon what somebody else says. Okay. So if Tucker says it, I got to say the opposite. Or if MSNBC says it, I got to agree with it, or I got to say the opposite. Okay. Depending on where I stand. Rather than saying, I think this is the right thing and, you know, the, the right idea. And I'm not, I'm going to take that position regardless of if Kamala or Tucker agree with it. Okay. This is, this is my position. And so this is why you, you, you see such, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's just strikingly common these days that you will see people take, you know, a, a position that they took the exact opposite of six months ago, because now all of a sudden somebody agrees with it. Okay. A person that they follow or they agree with says, this is, this is the position you should have. And they, you know, they don't put it in those exact words. And so this, this, I think, and that rots people's brain primarily because it's, it's a, it's a very uh, corrosive form of tribalism um, is, is, is what it is. Well, I do see it. No, I, well, I do see it as being in uh, more uh, liberal uh, or leftist uh, people where I do find them all of a sudden being in favor of uh, the, uh, you know, of Ukraine defending itself, even though I really doubt that these people would have cared that much about Ukraine to begin with. But I do think that there is an influence that is affecting them to act that way. That being said, the idea that those people are the ones that, you know, like uh, the idea of Ukraine being defended, thus I, as being a base and red-pilled internet renegade, would go the opposite direction and be in favor of Russia, I think is just as, uh, is just as ridiculous. But then the problem that I see is when it comes to, again, and I wish Gio was here right now, I don't know where he is, but when it comes to the problem of the people who are on the reactionary right, I don't think their position has changed like the left has. I think that they are pretty they are pretty uh, solidified in what they believe and have believed for a long time when it comes to values like having a dictatorship, being able to judge what happens in society so that we don't have this bureaucratic glut, so that we don't have this uh, technocratic state that ends up... And even when I say it, it's weird, because wouldn't a technocratic state that controls people be a dictatorship? So that's why I wish Gio was here because I don't really understand what exactly is going on here. But do you see? But do you see a way out for this? I mean, yes, talking together like we're doing here—that's one way of doing it. But as far as a lot of liberal-minded Americans addressing these problems head-on, do you think it's already happening? Do you think people are starting to worry about things like? tracking you know china style tracking having a digital currency like some countries are planning you know based on china and also a social credit scores things like that like do you see liberal-minded friends of yours christopher being concerned about these things and concerned about a commun quasi-communist dictatorship in the united states so let's put it this way. I think it's going, to, I, I think we're at, I, I think we're in a period of history and I should say not just this exact moment <coughs> with Ukraine and Russia and all this kind of good stuff. I think we're at a period of history 
you know, let's say plus or minus, you know, going back a couple of years and, you know, going a couple of years into the future where a lot of things are happening, which are going to determine the course of a much longer period of time. Um, and, you know, just as an example, what happened in Canada recently where they were able to start freezing bank accounts um, with the truckers and stuff like that. And people said, wait a minute, these guys were, you know, why did we need to invoke emergency powers for what, what amounted to a protest? Okay. I mean, there, there was no need for that. And all of a sudden there was this digital currency and then they were seizing digital currencies. Um, look, I can tell you like, look, you know, Facebook or Google keeping data on me is fundamentally different than the Chinese government keeping data on me. Those are two fundamentally different things. Um, Yes, Google keeps data on me, and we need to we need to think about how to you know secure make sure that that data is as secure as possible and things like that. I think we need to impose greater restrictions on you know any government access to to data like that. But those are two fundamentally different things. But I think absolutely, I think you're a lot of people are saying, what is the level of control, especially coming out of Corona, that we should be able to give over to technocrats? Um, because look, I think if there's if there's if there was ever an advertisement against the technocratic class, it's been the CDC during Corona. Um, the, the 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 CDC during Corona has not performed well. I, I, I think even a lot of liberals at this point would 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 agree with that uh, assessment. Um, and so I do think there is absolutely a rethinking of a lot of these issues. And if we're talking foreign policy, and, and I'll say something maybe mildly controversial here, one of the things that, uh, you know, think back almost a decade at this point, um, pre-Iraq war, is there was this there was this thinking coming out of Russia in the, in, the, in the 90s and everything like that, was that the United States had not been firm enough with, uh, with dictatorships and had worked too closely with dictators and things like that. Okay, and so Condoleezza Rice uh, and George Bush said, uh, and again, this was this was even pre uh, this was even pre Iraq War was we're not going to work we're going to take a much tougher stance with uh, allies even uh, with allies that are that are dictators even if they are allies we're going to be tougher with them we're we're not going to tolerate that and so I think that is one of the great conundrums of foreign policy is how do you work with countries that have a fundamentally different governance system, but you still maybe need to work with. And I don't think there's a good answer, but I do think we are maybe starting to say, you know, we, we should be taking a tougher stance with countries like that. Uh, I hope that would be the case. There are some comments over here that I think uh, go deeper into what I see as the dif the differentiation here. So Cyber Ninja Zero, a Middle Eastern listener of the show, says, Lev, a, a technocracy is a bureaucracy, while authoritarianism has more central node of control and doesn't allow the bloat of the techno regime. So the view that a lot of people, I think, in his corner have is that with the Western imperial liberty-minded uh, group, you're going to have this out-of-control bureaucracy forming from a lot of these big tech corporations being in bed with government. While they imagine that if some leader comes out 
like a, uh, I don't know, again, like, I think they're looking at Putin as being an example of this Alexander the Great figure, which is absolutely uh, the furthest thing from it. You know, the guy's in a bunker somewhere right now. But anyway, they see a figure like that being a representation of a kind of leader that would love their own people and would make sure that harm does not come to their own people from the... Uh, banking establishment from the financial institutions that is something that they see is missing today i personally have a huge problem with the the actual consequences in real life of what happens when a person like that comes in charge but do you see what the difference here is between these two yeah absolutely i mean i can tell you under the trump administration um the, one of the one of the foundations of the trump administration which didn't get much press um, and to be honest, I don't know how much progress they made because it's, it's very difficult. Um, but basically, a lot of laws in America these days are written, I wouldn't say vaguely, but the, the legislation actually delegates significant amounts of authority to regulators to basically finalize the details. Okay. Um, and so basically, this is this is vested the bureaucracy in, in the American system of government with enormous amounts of power. Um, and basically, uh, it, it, it makes it also much legally, it makes it much more difficult to fight uh, for, for many reasons. Um, and so basically, it's it's turning over an enormous amount of power to basically uh, an unaccountable fourth branch of government almost people which outlive the politicians and and you know things like that and so and so this is I think even in the Democratic Party you're hearing grumblings about this in different ways they may not have the same agreements uh, or approach as the right does but you're even hearing grumblings on the left about um, the bureaucratic state so yes absolutely I, I think that's a, a completely valid uh, concern. But on the other side, what the proposition is, uh, there was a comment right here which solidified it even more from Internet Friend. And once again, I'm going to read these, but again, Super Chats are always even more appreciated, which we'll, we will read in Look the at end. these comments, Mike. Yes, yeah, so, oh, here we go. So, uh, okay, Internet Friend says, a singular strong man who has disproportionate power is a man I can hold accountable can approach to solve problems and get answers instead of put on hold. Redirected accountability can't be diluted. 100% agree. So we'll basically look at, look at, uh, look, you know, how, how are you going to do that as the leader of a country? Okay. Like, you know, she would, she, you know, she would be one of the closest examples we have to, and nobody, nobody can get near him. Okay. So like, you know that 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 in in you know in a, in a modern governance system is 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 unrealistic. Uh, so what were you guys talking about? Well, well, uh, well, just that right now, as far as the differences between having a bureaucra uh, bureaucratic, technocratic system that both Christopher and a lot of people who are more in the reactionary right are against, while at the same time comparing that to a dictatorial system that people like Cyber Ninja Zero, for instance, advocate for. And Chris just pointed out right now one uh, problem there. The other problem that I would point out is what's currently, I think, going on with, uh, with Putler is... The propaganda that he himself instilled in Russian television is of such a nature that they make programs not for the audience in Russia. They make programs for Putin. 
and Putin watches those. Geo, hold on, hold on. Is there not programs? Geo, Geo, calm down. Uh, And there, and the situation there now is that they put on the programs. Putin watches those programs, and he buys his own bullshit. Basically, the kind of stuff that he's propagandizing, he's starting to believe himself. When it actually comes to something like we're gonna go into Ukraine, and they're gonna greet us as liberators because it's full of Nazis and drug addicts. There are many. There are many millennial and and like lower gen x tech people and uh journalists with laptop jobs that watch euphoria and think that's what the average american person is and uh well it's the same thing lev i don't know there's there's most media in the west is actually made for the ruling class it's not made for ordinary yeah people. but if they watch euphoria they're not going to go invade a country the, that's i think a big difference but well, they've, i mean they don't have to well okay no no, okay but they, you know, here's the thing here's the thing <laughs> but do you think then that having and this is for for both of you gentlemen do you think that having a dictator system what would prevent something like that from happening to more people than just putin where you put out where you put out propaganda we before, well hold but... on we will but hold on when we put when you put out propaganda and you start believing in that propaganda because there's nobody to challenge you. Like that is, I think, one of the biggest problems with the top-down structure where you have yes-men around you. There's not going to be anybody around you who's going to say anything that's going to be contrary to what you believe. And how is that a good system of governance? That's what I don't understand. So, Gio, make the case for it. And, Christopher, I would love to hear what you think. So go for it, Gio. Wait, wait, Christopher, you go ahead. Then I don't understand so what, what I'm I, arguing all I was going to say. All I was going to say was th- this is actually a very common process, even in the American presidency, where you know, um, you know, three to four years in in their first term, or you know, let's say uh, you know, in their sixth, seventh, eighth years, where they've they've assembled a trusted cadre of aides, um, and they even if they don't necessarily mean to, um, these are people that think very, very similarly. Okay, these are people mm-hmm. that watch the same programs. These yep. are people that have the same ideas, and so it ultimately becomes very bubble-like. Okay, and and and, and in fairness, this happens, you know, in Democrats and it happens in Republicans. Okay, um, so I, I'm not trying to take sides there. And so this is actually a very corrosive idea. And you know, the nice thing about uh, about democracies is, you know, at at the very least, in a in a democracy, we can get somebody from the from the different side or the same party to come in and have his own bubble of advisors. Um, so at least we get a different bubble. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in Canada, it's very similar because the the way it works is that it, it's different because, well, I mean, partially because we have no term limits, but all, all, it's like the way that it works in terms of the parliamentary system is that the machinery of the party itself is incredibly important compared to the way that a newer administration in America will pick and choose their cabinet. It really is very much party driven. It's the, especially with the liberal party because the machinery has been there forever. And so the machinery of that party almost dictates, even though technically the prime minister has more power than the American president, although with executive orders, that's kind of, you know, not, not so much the case, but I think that it's, it's very much, I would argue that in Canada, we have even more of an insular um, party political class than even in America, because in America you have, um, I think because the two party system is so on its face, just a very limited order of things. You have like different factions that will break off. You have like, people within the Republican party who definitely are more like, you know, the let's call it the Tucker Carlson side instead of the Sean Hannity side, if you know what I mean. And in the Democrats, you have like, you have, you know, the AOC people, 
you have the older like Clintonites, Clintonistas. You have, you know, that's the way it works. But what I wanted to ask you is that we were talking about before I left. Mm. Um, oh no, but but oh, I, go ahead, I, I did want to just finish that point. That oh you yeah, were you want to ask here. me? Well, no, no. Yeah. Well, in relation to what you just said right now, which I think is important about Canada, so. Uh -huh. You wouldn't say that the Canadian There's government... There's nothing important about Canada. <laughs> okay. You wouldn't say that the Canadian government is the exact same uh, or is worse than having a top-down dictatorship. There are still certain checks to power in Canada and the American system. No, I wouldn't. It's, those checks are becoming very blurry and indivisible as time goes on. So the di so the um, dictator, the tin horn dictator in some uh, foreign country somewhere in Africa or uh, in the Middle East, they would have this, uh, if they were in Canada, they would have the same leeway to do whatever they pleased in Canada as they would do in those countries. Is that what I'm getting? It, it depends. It depends on the style of leadership because you could say that, for example, Stephen Harper very much was a top-down figure within the Conservative Party because he had to be, because he was uniting different people. But Justin Trudeau is very much a puppet of the function and the sort of machinery of the party itself. Like, if you want to talk about Justin Trudeau, you have to talk about Butts, Carney, and especially Christia Freeland. Uh, so I, I don't know, get where you're living. I, I think, Lev, the problem is that we deal, when it comes specifically to anglo-american western quote-unquote democracies is that there's a very much there's a sophistication to the way things work there's a first sophistication in terms of how power is structured and how it's regulated you don't necessarily need a dictator to sort of have an iron fist and to crush dissent and to enact policy on a whim i would say that the way the american presidents have worked at least since the bush administration even to the reagan administration it's very been it's been the case that basically they could do whatever way they so, want. So meaning, meaning the powers. outcome for the people on the ground for uh, av is, the average is Joe the same, is the not same. Similar. Uh, Christopher, because... before we move on, do you agree with with that? I would I would say that's probably generally accurate. Uh, nothing major. In terms, oh, Steve wait, Love, there you go. Wait, 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 hold on. J <laughs> just so we're clear, in terms of the uh, average tin horn dictatorship, the outcomes from the dictatorship being the same for the people as living in Canada or living in America. Well, I can't speak. I can't speak to Canada. I, I, I do think America, what a lot of see. what a lot of people don't understand is the is the level in the United States. So let's put it this way: the thing about American. The, the thing about a lot of governments, the thing about a lot of governments is they are very, very, very process oriented. OK, even in China, I think there's there's a there's a that's how government works. There's there's a specific process. Um, but one of the things is, is like, especially at the top layers, there is a deference to authority within a within a specific government. And within those more corrupt or authoritarian systems, there is a greater deference to authority. And in the United States, there's less of, and I think in democracies, there's less of that. And then also people have a greater influence on that, which, I mean, they just don't in authoritarian systems. Mm. All right, there we go. So for all the people who were thinking that Christopher Balding is on the side of the dictators now, that is that is your answer right he there. No, he agreed that the outcome is like, I mean, 
I, I don't. But they're, they're all people. It's not a question of them not being people with their own interests. The question is, how do those interests affect people on the ground? And you said that they affect them in the same way as a tin horn dictatorship would. And I would disagree with that notion for the reasons that uh, no, Chris but, mentioned. But, but, anyways, this is no, but Lev, this is just semantic games right now. What no, I wanted no, to it's ask. Not, no, it's not semantics. What's semantic it's, about it? Be, this is a very. I think this is the one of the most I, the, important. The problem questions. is you're comparing apples. You're comparing apples to apricots, love. That's the problem. Well, we're comparing that... political systems. So on one hand, you have but a political saying, system like, that you would problem... prefer where somebody's on top and everybody else is on the bottom. And that's... no, but what I'm seeing, love, the the problem. Okay, the main problem I think is that you're operating on the assumption, which I hate to say most liberals do, is that ideological systems in toto inter determine the course of a nation or the course of history and that human ideals can, you know, this enlightenment bullshit about like the human ideals can transcend time, blah, blah, blah. The problem is that America, North America in general and parts of Western Europe, the reason that their outcomes are different is because of a variety of historical, cultural and geographic circumstances that have taken place. You can't really compare Russia, which has been on the cusp of two monumental civilizations, the East and the West, and the way that they've turned out in their history, and the way that the West but, has but, in America. Okay, but again, we're, like, we're trying to isolate de the, the impact of governance, and I think I, I think it'd be very clear that um, governance systems have do have significant impact on outcomes. Right, right, but I'm saying that as time goes on, we're seeing maybe there isn't such a, a great of a difference as... Um, the metrics of success of a civilization are going down across the board in the quote unquote West in North in North America in particular. I think that, but it doesn't make much sense if we're talking about like a country like Russia versus Ukraine, for example. I mean, those are the countries right now that are at war, and you see a difference between one country and another country and how it's run. Uh, is or, there really or, that or much Poland. of a difference, love? Is there really that much of a difference? S see, like this. I don't know. Ukraine I don't even know what to say by, about that. Ukraine is poorer than Russia. It's still run by oligarchs. It still has. It doesn't have these mythical Western freedoms that uh, you like to compared think. to what I mean. This Zelensky's all right, Chris. Here's the reason why I brought up, and I do yeah, want, I and I do want to move on soon. But just so you understand, the reason why I, I want brought, to go back to China. Yes, and, yes, and I want to go back to China too. But just real yeah. quick, I just want to be on the record. The reason why I brought it up is because I think this is the most important question of all when it comes to a lot of these conversations we have when it comes to people who want to be on the side of what they think would be the solution to a lot of the bureaucratic glut a lot of the problems here in the west and they don't see there being that much of a difference at all between the human outcome of the kind of governance that Russia has or China has and the kind of governance that, I don't know, the United States or Norway or Canada has. And just that by itself, I find to be very bewildering. And that's why it keep, I keep going say, back why, to it. Love, you said Norway. Norway is not um, a, a comparable example. Okay, fine. Forget Norway. Forget Norway. Norway is a very comparable example. Norway is a very comparable example. To America? Uh, not to no, not to America, but to Russia, absolutely. And the reason is simple: they have very very similar economies. They have lots of very similar, a lot of similarities. Okay, so yeah. like, if if you want to talk about how a governance system impacts um, impacts things, so basically what 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 Norway did is they set up a sovereign wealth fund, and then they literally pay out dividends to the entire populace. 
out of uh, out of the dividends from oil revenues and from uh, the sovereign wealth fund. Okay, that is a very clear difference in how governance impacts outcomes for the people at all levels of, of society. No, yeah, obvi- obviously, but I'm, but yet I, I think that Russia probably has more systemic pressures on them demographically even than even Norway. I mean, they. They, they, I mean, Norway doesn't have a lot of but who, neighbors. But whose fault is that? Well. Like all, all but these again, problems. Norway is very comfortable in the sense of so, so, it, it, so basically, so one of the things that is driving Russia's demographic issues are things like excess alcoholism, uh, you know, right. all kinds of these types of things, and these are things that they they've actually spent significant social money in Norway to address these issues. Okay, Hmm. so I mean, so absolutely governance absolutely impacts how these issues are played out. And, you know, um, what's done with, you know, the social, you know, the social product like oil. Right. But I I think what Love is saying is that in terms of the ideological system of of society is what determines I'm saying that governance it has a fair bit to do with the ideology of a civil No, I wasn't I talking about that... ideology. Ideology aside, I'm just talking about what is permitted and not permitted in the system based on the laws that it has and based on certain, let's say, unsaid agreements among the people who are running it as far as what they're able to uh, get away with and not. Right, but, but when it comes to places like Norway and to a lesser extent Russia, I mean, these... Yeah. I, again, love that you don't want to admit it, but demographics has a huge place in those in the role of like why systems either succeed or fail. And North America doesn't have a lot of cultural or racial or demographic cohesion as you know Norway or Sweden or anywhere. I mean, that's the problem. I think you can't. You're comparing huge mono states filled with the sort of multicultural melting pot of North America. I don't, I don't think that's the best example here at all, because if we're talking about Russia, which has imported a lot of people from the surrounding areas like Dagestan and so on, they did have, Russian is different than the Canada model or the, no, I'm not, I'm not saying they're the same, but what I'm saying is that you have a population. Yes. Or or so, so Gio, so, so again, you're, you're making your own argument and here's why. Okay. All kinds of stuff shows that multicultural societies should have significantly more problems than monolithic, uh, than, than, you know, let's say uh, racially, ethnically uh, unitary uh, states. So basically, these multicultural melting pots, Canada, et cetera, the United States, are by every metric still doing significantly better than states like Russia. But that's not because of their multicultural systems. The point that they're failing. I'm not saying it is. They they actually should be doing, they actually should be having a lot more stress. And it's still, so like one of the issues with like Russia is, is part of the reason that there is, and you know, again, lots of evidence about this, is all this, like you talk about the demographics, is the demographics are not solely, but absolutely related to the issues of how is governance and things like that. When people feel that there's no hope and things like that, what exactly. do they do? Yeah, that's my point. Yeah, mm. they, I mean, they, they, they start drinking, and that's a direct result mm. of uh, the, the, uh, the, the governance. 
but the only no, thing, but I, but the only but thing that I would add to that with the demographics, no. one, one quick thing I just want to add with the demographic, hashtag geoharassment with the demographics is that there was a time when there was not as much of the immigration into Russia from the surrounding areas. And back then there were other troubles in terms of how the government was run. If we're talking about like the USSR, for example. Yeah, I'm not so, justifying, like, for example, the, when it comes specifically to Chechnya, I mean, Stalin basically, uh, almost near genocide in a lot of them. That's not an example I would use. I mean, I agree with you there, love. I mean, that's not... Russia is very unique in the Soviet Union being able to oppress their minorities for however it was going. No, but not even oppressing the minorities. I'm talking about oppressing the majorities. Like, that's the other big issue here, where when you have a state like Russia, with the amount of Russians that for a long time, both under the USSR, which was a superpower, let's not forget, who were starving to death on a regular basis... And people even had troubles in the big cities as well. And you compare that to a system where there's maybe just as many people living that has been able to create a kind of system where people can actually thrive. That, to me, signals that governance has a lot to do with that. Now, you could argue, and this is a way that we could actually bring this conversation back to China, that Russia under the Golden Horde, I think that that did something to a lot of the Russians where on one hand uh, there was the Golden Horde, and on the other hand you had people like Alexander Nevsky, who were kind of like the uh, bosses that took the uh, bribe money from the cities to pay the Golden Horde, and if you didn't have the money, he would burn your city down. That kind of mentality, I think, made a lot of Russians uh, who were mostly serfs into this very dependent and very, I'd say, PTSD'd population, where they react in a very negative manner to, you know, to, to any kind of frustration. I don't think they can handle it. And that is why, for example, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but that's why during the Decemberist revolution, a lot of the Russian serfs that fought that and were jailed, a lot of them lost hope and uh, died, while a lot of the nobility who had a good upbringing, who had, you know, a family and people, community around them that were very supportive, they were able to withstand a lot of that, uh, a lot of those stressors. And I think this is also one of the reasons why Russia is in the horrible state that it is in today, because a lot of the people are used to having this leader figure. And I don't know, Christopher, do you think that that mentality is like this Eastern mentality having been ruled over by the Mongols for a period of time? Or do you think it's something else? Because a lot of the people who were, let's say, the intellectual class in Russia, they longed for the West. Pushkin longed for the West. He wanted to move to Paris. He did not want to even stay in Russia, so the emperor forced him to remain there. And I think that there was this westward look uh, from the uh, intellectuals and the poets and the artists. But uh, I don't know, Christopher, Wait, do you see that? Mentality? relevant to what we were talking about? I I th- no, I think it's extremely relevant because it would explain so- the position Russia's in right now in terms of its populace. Yes. So I think there's I think there's two things that I would that I would point to. First of all, I think there is just a general, there is just a general preference for freedom. Okay. And whatever that means for you as an individual. Okay. And, you know, different people, it's different things, you know, in China, it it could just be literally playing video games. You know, you you don't even care about, you know, the declaration of independence and stuff. You're just pissed off because she, you know, limits your video game time. Okay. Um, for some people, it is literally just, you know, they, they want, uh, they don't like all the restrictions, you know, societal and, you know, other stuff like that. You know, I knew a lot of CCP members that thought the whole thing was bullshit. Okay. But that's how you got ahead. I mean, that, that's how, that's how you get ahead. You got to join the mob. 
if you, you need to become a made man um, if, if, if you want to get ahead. Um, I think there is just, you know, uh, people want to go about their lives, uh, you know, in, in peace and freedom. Um, and when I talk about freedom, I'm not even necessarily, again, talking about, you know, highfalutin ideals and philosophers and all this kind of good stuff. It's literally just, I want to be able to get the job that I want to get and, you know, be paid and, you know, have a house and a wife. And that's the end of it. Um, no, but I, I think like what I, what I wanted to ask about, uh, specifically, oh God, I forget. It was a long time ago. No. About, um, about China, uh, funding various, um, in term, in terms of like, uh, let me think. Um, anyways, to address your question about the, the sort of, uh, problems or rather lack thereof with multiculturalism. I, I think the, the problem is when it comes to North America in particular, Again, these historic circumstances and technology itself and, you know, being the world's reserve currency and basically destroying the opposition in World War II has led to, I think, a temporary rose-colored picture of the North American multicultural experience. And as time goes on, I think we're starting to see fissures within that experience. And I think that in, we, were, we will slowly start to see that perhaps civilizations with at least some maybe not racial but certainly cultural and demographic cohesion perhaps could be a, a rival model to what we think has been the norm of uh you know liberal world governance but now now i wanted to ask you this now i want to ask you this um there are people that say that xi ping and people within his administration that they they've read um the american political theorists you know, that they, they they know about Westphalian liberalism. They know about sort of like American Republican ideal, like the Republic ideals, and that they are potentially using that in sort of like a weird, like uh, fusion, if you will, of different ideals from, you know, Maoism to Confucianism to even like American sort of like old school Westphalian liberalism. Now, do you think that's true? Do you think that and there are people that have read you know, the great American political thinkers within China. Mm. Do you think that that gives them an understanding or an edge against the West and that they are perhaps um, enacting or fulfilling certain American political ideals even better than America? Or do you think that they really don't care and that um, they'll just go along with, uh, I guess you could say, the sort of Maoist consensus that has been there for decades and decades now? I think if we've seen anything, it is how poorly Chinese leadership understands the United States. I mean, if, if we've, if we've seen anything, um, uh, you know, and to be honest, you know, I think, uh, I think, uh, I, I think, so basically the, there's one thing that I would say China has done very well, and that is compromise a lot of people very, very, very well. When it comes to how they understand American politics um, and uh, the American populace, I think it's it's actually surprising to me how poorly they understand it. Um, and the reason I say this is, is that it, it's surprising to me how well they understand how to compromise people. I think that's probably the same the world over, you know, you give them, you give them a suitcase of cash and a couple of hookers and, you know, you've caught, you know, you can make a lot of friends very yeah. quickly in any country. Um, but it is surprising to me how poorly they understand uh, the, uh, the uh, American 
in politics and why politicians do things and where their interests lie. Um, I think that is actually surprising. You know, if you just look at state media, state media is, you know, um, you know, even the English language stuff is, is, is absolutely awful. I mean, they're not even trying. I mean, it's, 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 it's widely mocked, um, whether it's the, the internet songs that they try to make go viral and stuff like that. And so I think that's actually surprised me about how poorly they understand and try to get what they want out of America, even if you had the same objectives. But for example, people are pointing to uh, what's his name, Wang Huning, as a leading intellectual political theorist in China who was uh, attempting some kind of like weird fusion with American republicanism and, uh, you know, Maoism and so forth. I wonder if, uh, they see that he's basically like the whisper of a Ping, the way that people think Dugan is with Putin. Um, I, w- I wonder if uh, his influence will perhaps give a better understanding of American politics and political ideals than um, like, it's very interesting because a lot of people think that the Chinese have bested America and that in fact, like our political, like America, Canada and America, our political classes are sort of like, uh, you know, uh, drooling short bus people compared to the Chinese. But it's very, it's very interesting. You're saying that they don't understand American ideals compared to, um, yeah, like it's very interesting. I, I've, it seems that like people are almost steel manning the influence of Chinese Chinese ideals upon mm. uh, political life elsewhere. Um, yeah. So I mean, look, modern Chinese thinking is driven by a very uh, romanticized historical version of China. Um, Mm -hmm. where, so, you know, the best way to describe it is China is frequently translated. The word for China in is frequently translated as middle kingdom. But as, as it was explained to me by a Chinese speaker, that doesn't mean middle as in the middle seat of, 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 of a bus or something like that, where you have somebody on your left and somebody on your right. It's more, it's better translated as almost center as in you are the sun and everybody revolves around you. Okay. And so that, that creates a very, like, uh, almost selfish conception of how the world works, that, that uh, people revolve around, uh, revolve around you. It's a, it's a very, very racial, something people mm. don't understand, is a very, very racial concept yeah, the Han, of Han how supremacy. the nation, state, and government works. Um, and that is absolute. People don't understand the depth of uh, of that. That is absolutely mm. vital to the entire concept of, of of governance in China today. But is there also a uh, racial cast? As far as I recall, somebody saying that uh, some of the descendants who are within the uh, CCP today are the descendants of uh, Chinggis Khan. Do you think that there is anything going on there with? Uh, a longing for that kind of level of empire that existed back then and are there still these kind of racial hierarchies in china with the han but then if they're the descendants of genghis khan who are mongolians how does that work you see like i i'm very confused when you know it comes i've to never this. heard of i've never heard of the you know uh let's say tracing lineage back to genghis khan i mean i'm not going to say that that doesn't exist i've never heard of it i don't have any knowledge of it there's absolutely like princeling status of like, if you look at a lot of the senior leaders in China today, it's the same. They are the children or grandchildren, whatever of the guys who were with Mao. Okay. The, 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 so yeah. there absolutely yeah. is in that sense. Um, and I won't say all of them, but a lot of them, uh, it's basically the same. It's basically the same family. 
So can I uh, read something? I don't know about that, Lev, too, because it seems that the Ch- the Chinese going back to Genghis Khan, that would sort of be against the Han supremacy thesis. I don't know about that, Lev. But um, so mm. this is from Palladium Magazine, which I will say, without ruffling too much feathers, because who knows, maybe we'll have some people on from Palladium in the future. Uh, they're probably... I'm not going to say anything live. Let's just say I, I take them with a grain of salt a little bit. Um, this is uh, Huan Hun, um, Wang Haoning wrote this book um, that our favorite man, Logo Talis, loves called America Against America, where he marvels at homeless encampments in the streets of Washington, D.C., out of control drug crime in poor black neighborhoods in New York and San Francisco, corporations that seem to have fused themselves to and taken over responsibilities of government, kind of like in China. Um, eventually, he concludes that America faces unstoppable undercurrent of crisis produced by its societal contra- contradictions, including between rich and poor, white and black, Demogra- Democrat and oligarchic powers, egalitarianism, class privilege, individual rights, and collective responsibilities. Um, but while America can, he says, perceive that they are faced with intricate social and cultural problems, they tend to think of them as scientific and technological problems to be solved separately. This gets them nowhere, he argues, because their problems are in fact all intrinsically interlinked and have the same root cause, a radical nihilistic individualism at the heart of modern American liberalism. Now, I agree, and of course he has read a Plato Hegel and Aristotle, but I, I will agree with uh, him. But I don't think that uh, China is any—I don't know—any better in that regard. I mean, they have different problems. But in terms of the diagnosis, at least, I think that maybe China is aware of the systemic problems facing America. But whether or not China—I mean—but again, they have their own set of problems. So, what, what do you think of uh, his assessment of America? I mean, look, you know, yeah, there's there's homelessness, you know, I mean, I think everybody in America, you know, would be willing to just, you know, like cut San Francisco off and let it drift out <laughs> into the ocean. I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, debate about uh, about that. I mean, one of the things you have to, to think about, though, is that, you know, even accounting for all the potential differences, you know, a homeless in San Francisco receives more in goods and services and all this kind of good stuff than you know a significant portion of uh, a significant portion of the Chinese population um, you know th- this is just you know this is this these are the these are the facts um, so yeah the, pro- the problems are there the, the problem is not and again it gets it, what he's basically complaining about are the concepts of freedom and you know the heterogeneous melting pot I mean, that's what he's complaining about is that people can, you know, live in different places. Um, you know, the, the reason, you know, just as an example, one of the reasons that there's what we know of as, as homelessness in the United States is there's a high degree of mental illness among the homelessness in the United States. The reason for the reason that a lot of mental ill mentally ill are even allowed on the streets is because according to U.S. legislation, it's virtually impossible to involuntarily commit someone. Yeah. Okay. Um, So the only way you can really involuntarily commit someone is if they are a direct, uh, an immediate and direct physical threat to themselves or others. Okay. And even sometimes not even that is strong enough, especially in California. And sometimes even that's not strong enough. So basically that's the reason that a lot of this mental illness is, is even allowed on, on the streets. So again, there's absolutely a valid debate about, you know, what level should we have for, you know, being able to forcibly commit someone. But basically his fundamental argument is about the, is about the entire nature of uh, freedom. 
Mm. Yeah. Well, that that is the argument that a lot of the people, again, going back to the thing but, we keep talking about, present yeah, as being be the big clear, problem. Like, I, I don't think like like again. I, I think the problem is that with like reactionaries is that with that that are pro China is that they they see like again these baubles of you know well they're resisting American liberalism and they have you know bans on degenerate mm. Western media. But at the same time, I mean, do you want to live in a society where? Uh, you know, your social credit score is going yeah. to be determined by uh, the same people that rule our lives now in America. But, but the problem Canada. is that, like, you know, that's but the not... problem is that if you take China out of the equation, what you're still left with is people who don't like American liberalism. And my question to you is, what is the alternative no, that you want? But I'm saying the Chinese system isn't a good alternative. I that's agree. Well, conclusion. that's why I'm saying let's get rid of the Chinese system. But what is the best alternative? This is what we are. If we don't want to be ruled by China, if we don't want the social credit score, then what? What are you bringing to the table? What do you want us to have? This is my confusion. I mean, not you, Geo, just like as Geo, but in general, the egregore. Like the people who talk oh, about the yeah. problems I mean, of liberalism. Yeah, again, that's... And, that, yeah, and that's, that's why, That's why. look, we. This is, this, is, this is why whenever I hear these complaints about, you know, the U.S. or everything like that, you know, look, I've been to a lot of countries. I've spent a lot of time in a lot of places, and I can tell you... Um, just about every country in the world would swap their problems for the U.S. problems. Okay. I mean, yeah, I'm not about to say the U.S. is perfect. Just about every country in the world, with the exception of Switzerland, Norway, and a couple places like that, would swap their problems for the U.S. problems. Mm. Well, if I can make a case for Geo's side, the only thing that I would say is that since America is a country where it has so little problems— and people do have a lot of so little creature problems, no, relative relative little problems uh, and people have so much creature comforts people get into decades. people get into this malaise of thinking you know what am i going to do what am i going to reach for because a lot of people i think one of the biggest problems is that a lot of people they don't have that much to reach for and even with relationships, a lot of people are thinking, why am I going to get into this relationship? There's no way that I could prove myself as a man, as somebody who would bring home the bacon, so to speak. There doesn't seem to be anything in this life where what I do is going to have as much of a significant effect upon, you know, my family and the culture that's around me. Uh, it, you know, it feels like people are missing out. That, I think, is the malaise that, uh, at least in the more right circles, like the left people have other things, but that's the malaise. So before we uh, get to the Super Chats and finish this off, and also I want to ask you about the future, and that'll be the final question, but before that, anything you would like to add as far as how can we get out of this particular malaise of a lot of people not seeing any goal for them to strive for, anything that's bigger than, as they see it, just this bread and circus entertainment life that they're uh, that they're in right now you know part of that i think gets to much more existential stuff just in in general politics i think one of the things is is that there's this sense among i think the electorate in a, a lot of countries i don't think it's just the u.s that uh that they're not being listened to um and i think you know in and i think one of the problems is is that every u.s president enters office thinking of themselves these days as they need to be transformational. Nobody wants Joe Biden to be transformational except, you know, AOC. Okay. Um, there's very few people that want Joe Biden to be transformational. There's, there's very few people that want that, that wanted Donald Trump to be transformational. 
Okay. I think one of the things is, is if, if, if you know, I, I've said this jokingly, I don't care if it's a Republican, a Democrat or a Harvard MBA that said, I'm going to run for president. And the only thing I'm going to focus on is making, I'm not going to pass any new legislation. I'm just going to focus on making what the government does better. Okay. I'm going to fake it, focus on making it run more efficiently to better serve the people. I mean, we talk about the administrative state, you know, I've, I've heard some people say things like, you know, we're at that state in, in uh, the administrative state where we need to pass a law that says for every one new page you stick in regulations, you take out two. Okay. Or you take out one. Okay. You know, maybe, maybe it's some ratio of one to one or one to two, something like that. But, you know, I, I think there's, and so a lot of times is, so what happens is a lot of politicians, you know, like, look, if you look at a lot of the policies between Biden and Trump, there's actually in many ways, a lot of similar, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarities. They might go about it differently stylistically. And yes, there are absolutely differences like Iran and, and other things like that, but there's also a lot of similarity. And so what happens is, is, is the politicians are really fighting about issues that are almost marginal. Okay. They're not fighting about issues that uh, a lot of people really, really get down to uh, really focus on. And so I think if there was, if, if politicians said, we're going to focus on this, that would, that would, I, I think that would engender a lot of, uh, a, a lot more support. But beyond the policies, though, something that the chat is pointing out right now, which I think is important, is the spiritual aspect, where I don't think a policy, although they may think that a government policy would do something about it, the uh, things they're bringing up has to do with, for example, uh, let's see over here, uh, government has to have spiritual grounding. So there's that quote that's often on 4chan, that tradition is not... How does it go? Tradition is not the worship, worship of, ashes. of ashes. It is the, preserva the preservation of a flame. Yeah, preservation yeah. of fire. <laughs> and I think that there is something to the idea of preserving a kind of fire of something that's bigger than yourself in the world. And people feel very disconnected from it. This is why they go into these particular bubbles where they're all self-reinforced self as far as their worldview and why they fall for people like Putin or China or whatever. So my final question here is regarding that is, how do we get out of that? Can we get out of that? Or spiritually speaking, are we just doomed in being like these disconnected vessels that are trying to get some semblance of a community by speaking together, some successful and some not successful? I mean, I've often thought, you know, America, having lived in Asia for a long time, you know, I hear the problems Americans complain about. And I just think to myself a lot of the time, it's just it sounds like complete bullshit. You know, I mean, it, it, a lot of what I hear Americans complain about strikes me as, you know, you need a therapist couch, not, you know, not a TV show on on, on Fox or MSNBC. Um, and I, I think, you know, I'll, I'll be honest and saying I don't necessarily know how to solve the 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 let's say social spiritual issues you're talking about mm -hmm. but i absolutely think that they are completely valid because i think a lot of people don't feel that they have meaning in their life i mean i think if you're looking at you know the great resignation as it's being talked about mm -hmm. um with what's going on i think a lot of that stems from people saying well, what am i really doing with my life like what is, what is bringing meaning to my life um, I, and I think that's something that a lot of people are, you know, struggling with is that they feel that there is this lack of meaning in what they're, in what they're doing. And I think 
having not having a sense of hope. One thing that I will say about Asia that I loved about Asia, and it was true of China, it's true of Vietnam and, and other countries, and for very different reasons. This had very different manifestations. But you always felt that people had a sense of hope that the future was going to be better. Now, what's amazing to me is I think in, in the, a lot of the West is I feel that in the, a lot of the West, people's situations are fundamentally better now and are probably going to be better into the future than most peoples in Asians. But for whatever reason, there was this sense in, in a lot of Asia, China, Vietnam, that there, that, that there was hope for the future. And, and for whatever reason, um, I, don't, I don't have nearly that same sense of hope or optimism about the future. And I do think it gets to those issues that you're talking about. I don't have a real good answer for you about what to do, but it, it, I do absolutely think that is a, that is a fundamental problem. And this is a problem that hopefully by speaking and by bringing in uh, professionals such as yourself together with people who are more anonymous people, people who are on the internet with the anime avatars all together in one room, I think a lot of magic can happen from that. All I can ask from the audience is that you guys keep an open mind and try to see things from a different perspective. I know you say, well, Lev, you should see things from a different perspective. I already did, and I went through that, and now I see yeah, the, right. and now I yeah. see the light. Very, very Look at this comment. Look at this light. Different. Look at this light that's on me from the sunset right now. I'm covered in it, in, the, in this light. Anyway, okay, super chats, and then we're, then we're done. Uh, the great conversation. So, Super chat from ba based R word. I don't even know what the YouTube algorithm anymore. I don't want to risk it. Five dollars. Okay, based mm -hmm. retard. Five dollars through super chat. Z is just competent enough to play the Imperial game outside the Westphalian borders game. Northern Myanmar is now China, and who cares what a map says? Any any thoughts on that? No, I think that's that's absolutely. I mean, look. I mean, that, look. The, the, the PLA is absolutely big into drug and arms running uh, down there. So, um, I mean, look, the PLA is moving drugs. I mean, look, you know, if you talk about fentanyl in the U.S. and stuff like that, that's absolutely helping. That's absolutely being facilitated by PLA colonels and things like that. So, mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, make what he's talking about, I think, is, is very accurate. Yes. And next super chat, I think this is the final one, unless anybody's going to sneak another super chat from uh, Zach. 10 pounds are we safer today than we were when the soviet union existed i think not we need russia whether we like it or not and by undermining them we haven't a hope at tackling global issues you know i i think you know if if russia was to make a big move let's say uh, you know some type of nuclear uh, attack somewhere um, I think you would absolutely have to assume that that was coordinated or at least discussed with China before the event um, would be my would absolutely be my default position. And uh, on that, I, I think Beijing realizes that they have much too much to lose to being involved in something like that. And so I, I, I think in that sense, Beijing would definitely act as, as, as a stabilizing force. Hmm. And those are all the super chats. The final question that I have for you, Christopher, is any thoughts on, based on what you've seen already, what is going to be happening with Russia, Ukraine, and China going forward? Like, the furthest you can make a prediction. I mean, honestly, the, to be honest right now, I mean, I think, you're in a, I think we're in a period of very real change. Um, and 
making predictions at this exact moment. It's kind of like everything has been tossed out off the blanket into the air. And look, I think it's unlikely. I think it's very unlikely. But is it possible that uh, China reevaluates things and says, wait a minute, we don't necessarily want to ally ourselves with these Russian guys quite so much? Yeah, that's possible. I don't think it's likely. I don't think it's likely. No, it's not likely. Is well, it possible? Is it possible that Germany says, "Hey, we're going to spend. We're actually so worried about Russia. We're going to spend two and a half percent, and we're going to buy all the F thirty five jets that the U S will sell us." Yeah, I think that's the most likely. Is it also possible that Germany in six months says, "Ah, you know what? Hey, the whole Ukraine thing is passed. We're going back to normal." Yeah, I, I think Maybe. Yeah, that's, that's possible. I, I mean, I think yeah. so. I, I think we're at one of those very strange periods in history where making predictions much more than a few hours in advance is is very dangerous proposition. It's, it's very much the beginning of 2020 in some ways, where there's that period of indeterminacy, where it's like anything. It's like a time warp where like mm. the hauntological machine can come about, and anything can go. Like yeah. the the week after 9/11, the week, the first weeks of. Uh, the Chinese delicacy if we I don't know if a YouTube will ban you now for saying the word, but you know. Um it's it very much has that flavor to it. I despite what Lev believes by reading the Kiev Independent, I think that there will be a decisive military victory for Putler and uh, he will crush all resistance. He will oh, go geez. all the way to the West. But whether he wants you, you to You know that a guess we're gonna a guess we're gonna have right now will, he's under siege in Ukraine right well, now. You should tell him that when he comes in. He'll love it. Do you, Lev, you mean who I'm thinking of? Well, no, the uh, Polish journalist who was oh, going I to thought be you on. Meant, he's... I thought you meant someone with uh, insight like, uh, you know, Coach Redpill. But um, no, um, I think that there, I think it will be, unfortunately, I don't know if Putin wants to avoid a situation where he did with Grozny in particular in the 90s or the early 2000s. He got his where... ass handed to him in Grozny. No, he didn't. He took Grozny. He defeated a lot of the militants, he, but he took he took Grozny after defeating the entire after Grozny city. was totally blown apart. Yes, totally exactly. Blown apart. What what but a no, wonderful no, military no, victory! You didn't let me finish that. What I meant is that he had immense trouble keeping it because of the Chechen militants and their uh, you know voracious nature of fighting. I I think he wants to avoid that situation where he's going to have to constantly deal with the Ukrainian insurgency. So who knows if he just wants to take. Uh, a certain portion of Ukraine. I don't know what's going to happen. It's whether uh, I think their strategy was to contain certain areas of Ukraine, but who knows now? Everything's up in the air. Um, I can tell you. I can tell you point blank. They believed go going in that they would conquer the all of Ukraine in two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, period. Like that was their expectation. That was their plan. Yeah, but 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 just because they haven't done in two weeks, I mean, come on. I, I two think more that... weeks. Two more weeks. Oh, shut up. <laughs> They're gonna flatten the curve in two weeks. Okay. I think yeah. that they there will okay there will be a decisive military W for Russia. Whether but what happens after that is yet to be determined. Geo, could... they're recruiting Syrians right now. They're, they they didn't even what, what like, they, even they haven't with? even sent in the GRU Spetsnaz love. They haven't sent in their A team. They haven't sent in their career <laughs> soldiers yet. Cope, wait until cope, they send cope. them in. Cope. Wait until they send the Spetsnaz. Yeah, yeah wait, wait, wait. Um, this is all cope. So, so so basically, what you're talking about is not a decisive military victory. This is like 
you know, this is like, you know, it's going down to the wire. Now, look, I tend to agree with you. I, I think you still have to consider Russia the favorite. But at right. this point, I mean, basically, he's going to have to do he's going to have to recreate throughout basically all of Ukraine. Grozny. I mean, that's basically yeah, what that's, he's going to have to do. Yeah. That's not decisive. Yeah, that's that, true. You, and you speaking might of not the even word, consider that a military victory. And speaking <laughs> of the word Grozny, in Russian, the word Grozny means like fierce. And I think this is, despite all the Redditors and all that propaganda you guys are reading up over there, I think that the Ukrainians have shown themselves to be some of the fiercest nah, warriors of all when it comes Compared to... Compared to the Chechnyans, love? Come on. Yes, no, but the, Chechnyans, the, Chechnyans? Are, the Chechnyans have oh. been spoiled by uh, Louis Vuitton and all these fashionista brands. You if you look at the... You uh, can't compare the... Uh, love, you can't compare the average like, Chechnyan to the... To the high command that works for they're the like, They're you like, uh, the Chechnyans oh. are like Sarah Jessica Parker now. It's pathetic. Oh my god, are you kidding me? <laughs> the most, some of the fiercest caucus warriors Gio, this in is, human history. Gio, Gio this is your, gonna... yes, yes, because this is your problem, Gio. You've they been psyop. They off the Russians for how long, love? Yeah, that was then and this is now. Okay, they've changed. Oh, and, Bring this on perception, Buj- Buj- and again, uh, there's, he- this, there's this perception that the people that you see in these rough and tough commercials, like, oh, we are the fierce Russian strong soldiers, Lev, that they're uh, the ones that are, it's all pathetic, man. It's all an illusion. It's all Maya. I will agree, Lev. Yeah, the neo-Nazi as a battalion, they're good fighters. They're the, one of the only capable divisions that the Ukrainians have. I will give that to you, Lev. That just like when we're talking about Bandera and people like that, uh, both the Jewish pe- and here, uh, both the Jewish people and the Russians who are in Ukraine and all these people, they've set all those things aside because they have other values. And let me ask you one final question. Let me ask you one final question about this, Gio. Your anti-Russian, your your self-hating Russiaphobia is so severe. Including the native Russians including the native Russians that are Ukrainian citizens that are fighting against the Russian oh, government, including yeah, them. The I'm on their, I'm on their side. Yeah. No, no. Oh, well, one final man. question though, being a Nazi, being a Nazi, last thing I checked, last time I checked requires you to want to exterminate a certain race. So which race do the uh, Ukrainian Nazis want to exterminate? If they're made up of Jews, Russians, Ukrainians, who do they want to exterminate? So where's the Nazism? Listen, I don't want to pull a cultured thug on you, love, but that's not really, like, the sum total condition of National Socialism. <laughs> that's not, like, they still hate, like, these identifiable groups. It doesn't matter that they're taking money from them. In fact, that's probably strengthening the case. No, but how do they express the hate? What are they doing to express this hate? Well, I mean, they enacted pretty much almost close, close by any other name, a genocide against the Russians in Donbass and Ludansk. <laughs> talking about yeah, again you know this is propaganda years, been no this is this is a lie ethnics, uh, no this is a lie what's been happening uh, is that the russian government was sending in Chris, ancient provocateurs into donbass which caused the government to conversation after lev when chris has to go me, no i gotta i gotta go eat no, i gotta go eat after this one and one right now lev it's want. it's over. It's over. I've said my it's piece. Over. Agent provocateurs went into Donbass. You're now the Chechnyans aren't the fiercest warriors in all of the Caucasus. I can't believe you. No, they're not. Okay. All right. We are done with the stream. I want to thank Christopher so much for being a part of this experience. And Christopher, oh. I would love for you to come back anytime. You are welcome yes. on Break the Rules. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. And is there anything you would like to promote? Is there any uh, anything? 
No, I'm I'm good for now, guys. This this was fun. Excellent. Thank you, my friend. This Thank you so much great. for coming in. Oh, and where could we find where could we find you if we want to find uh, Christopher Balding? Uh, I have uh, two websites. Uh, let's say uh, baldingsworld.com, and then uh, a recent project I've started, uh, newkitedata.com, where we're uh, basically doing uh, it's let's just say interesting data out of China. Excellent. So, guys, please follow both of those sites. I'm putting them in the uh, in the chat right now. And that's it. Once again, everybody subscribe and add a like. I got to keep reminding everybody here, please add likes. When you add likes, it helps the algorithm out, the YouTube algorithm. And last but not least, patreon.com slash break the rules. Become a patron today. And as you know, Gio, we've been doing Patreon-only streams. We had Father Emmanuel McCarthy on. That was a fantastic stream. Oh, yeah. What's going on this Thursday, Lev? Uh, okay. This homesteader stream yeah well this thursday we're going to be specifically talking about the u.s economy in light of what's going on right now having the homesteader boys in here as well so apex is joining us and bastiat is also joining us for that one uh, oh so it's going God. to be more okay all right Christopher, a, I feel like taking a shower. Christopher, <laughs> thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful night, everybody. I am ending this thing right now. Take care. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I, I missed I missed Tuxus Need. I have to say Tuxus Need. It's very important. Tux is a great contributor. Five US dollars. This is the new kind of Marx this new kind of Marxism is destroying our cohesion way more than multiculturalism IMO. There we go. A new kind of Marxism. I don't know about that. Well, I guess the cultural uh, kind. All right. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, Good night, everybody. Bye. Thanks there so much, guys. Thank you.